0: a Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday, and this is episode 120. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I'm your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City, and my lone co-host tonight is...
1: Dave Dr. Becker in uh, Wildwood, New Jersey.
0: Yes, and Dave is calling in on the uh, the love line, the sexy, hot HMP love line right now, because he is actually on vacation. That's just how dedicated he is. So thanks, Dave, yeah, right. for taking the time out of your vacation to podcast with us for a little bit.
1: No, no problem. I just wish that uh, Skype was working, but apparently it's not.
0: Yeah, poor Dave. He's um where he is right now. The Wi-Fi is being shared by myriad other individuals, so... Right, it just wasn't
1: going to work.
0: Yes, and if you're all wondering where the Wolfman is, as we record this tonight, he is actually celebrating his wedding anniversary, so uh, happy anniversary to Mr. and Mrs. Wolfman. Absolutely. But I think we figured out a way to incorporate Josh later on in the show. Maybe we'll have him in hologram form or something. But I've been saying we, and that's because we do have a very special guest here who's taken the time out to join us. We're grateful to have the host of the Sci-Fi Podcast. We welcome back, Metroid.
2: Hello. I'm not a special guest. At this point, I'm just someone to fill
0: in. (laughs) (laughs) I know you probably feel that way, but honest to goodness, like we don't have guests on horror movie podcasts that often, and I honestly can't tell you why but i have this whole list of people that i you know always want to talk to and i think it's probably laziness on my part i don't invite people in time but matt troyd here was gracious enough to still attend even with short notice so thank you but matt uh, tell the listeners what's been going on lately on the sci-fi podcast so they can check it out
2: uh that's a good question so Let me see. Uh, Looks like the last thing we actually discussed on the sci-fi podcast. It was pretty cool. Uh, We had an episode, I believe it was episode 39, even though technically it's probably episode 55. Uh, (laughs) Our episode count, it's all over the place. Mm
3: -hmm. (laughs) Um,
2: But we recently uh, reviewed Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and spoiler alert, I didn't like it. I thought it was kind uh, kind of awful. But uh, Station was great on that of course she's been uh, a blast lately and she's going to be on the Universal Monsters cast soon actually which is great because she's a huge Universal Monsters fan oh, nice. so that'll be nice. exciting I think hmm yeah that's excellent yeah very cool and uh, you know we've kind of been just gearing up getting ready for things uh, we had a huge hiatus uh, where we had you know hosts that were graduating from college uh, and and we had a baby, Station and I did. So uh, I did a couple of episodes called It Came From Planet X. They're, they're episodes where I basically uh, do all the talking myself with a guest, and we've got a couple more of those coming up because they're just fun to kind of throw in here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that said, we are gearing up to do some really cool things. We're kind of changing our format a little bit. Uh, we are going to be focusing pretty heavily on pre-existing franchises, movies, and things like that. And a lot less on new releases. We will still cover the big new releases like Alien Covenant. That episode comes out uh, as of this episode recording right now. That episode comes out in a little less than a week or so. Nice. Um, but, and uh, we had, Jay, we had you along for that. It was fantastic.
0: <laughs> I loved it. I love being there.
2: And uh, But we're, we're going to be focusing a lot more on pre-existing movies, franchises, and uh, even getting into some pretty fun stuff Outside of that, like we are going to be doing a summertime party that we will be recording live where we do a lot of uh, video. We'll be putting video up on the website <laughs> where we do some uh, what we call garage door video game playing. We have a projector. We put up old 8-bit and 16-bit games on our garage door, and that's a lot of fun. So we'll be doing that and discussing games quite extensively in an episode or two here coming up.
0: Oh, that's All right. cool. That's great, yeah, and I'll, I'll tell the listeners out there, and if you are familiar with the Sci-Fi Podcast, then you already know this, but it is an absolute pleasure to hang out with these people in person. I've had the opportunity now to go to a couple of movies with them, we, I saw Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 with them, and Alien Covenant, and it is so much fun, so honestly, I think you guys should have some kind of like prize drawing where the winner could attend it, a movie with you guys. And I would uh, stuff the ballot box Uh, with my own name.
2: Well, I appreciate the kind words. I mean, it's crazy, but I appreciate it. Uh, We are actually...
1: What what happens if it's like somebody from Melbourne where they fly them in?
2: Yeah. Uh, They will be responsible to get here on their own. We'll put them up for the night somewhere, sure. Yeah. We're we're actually going to be doing that. We're going to be, if if everything plays out right, we'll be giving away uh, a pass to Comic-Con this coming fall in september mm-hmm. so okay. hoping that works out the way it should mm-hmm. um but we'll be giving away a, a, a weekend pass to come out hang out with all the sci-fi guys at uh and gal and probably a lot of our friends and family that'll tote uh, tote along with us but it's cool we we've we've had a blast covering the the uh i guess they're the utah salt lake city really utah and area including Idaho, Wyoming, a lot of Colorado where there's just not a lot of Comic-Con events. Mm -hmm. Salt Lake's Comic-Con is huge considering. And this one in the fall looks so far to be pretty good. In fact, Val Kilmer is going to be there um, and a number of other pretty good guests. And so we'll be at that. And we're trying to currently figure out a way to get a listener to join us for the weekend. So uh, it was a good
0: idea, Jason. And I had it first. Yes, you did. You beat (laughs) me to it.
2: No, it'll be cool. I hope it works out
0: awesome well speaking of uh, vacation cuz we mentioned that uh, dr shuck is on vacation uh, he he does have this this really creepy experience <laughs> that i think he could tell you about if we could persuade him it, it involves a baby in a restaurant and uh Dave yeah, would yeah, you would it you just, mind it was just, it
1: was, no no problem it was it was just a damnedest thing we um we were up on the boardwalk along the Waterford boardwalk and we stopped in this place um Old, it's an old, like '50s throwback place called the Duop Diner. Uh, it's not, it's not a five-star restaurant by any stretch of the imagination. I don't even know if it would, what type of stars it would get, but you know, it's okay. We go in there, we eat every now, and, you know, and we're on vacation. Well, we're sitting there, and, and, and a, a group of people come into the table next to us. Let's say maybe about six, seven people, and they are pushing what it, you know, you out of the corner of your eye looks to be a baby carriage with a blanket over it. So you think, all right, well, the baby's asleep. It's kind of strange to bring it into this place with this loud music, but whatever. Well, all of a sudden, I see my wife, like she's laughing, and I see the waiter over at the table sort of walk over, and he's kind of freaking out to his manager. And so my wife clues me in, and I look at it. It's not really a baby carriage. It's more of a basket that looks like a baby carriage, and it even has like a baby blanket over top of it. But it's really more of a basket type of thing. Um, <laughs> and as I'm looking at it, this thing starts shaking wildly, and I said, "What the is hell basket is my case. Wife? I <laughs>
2: hope it's not basket case. Basket <laughs> case.
1: No, no, my and the, well, wasn't well, far off. I guess, and my wife says, "Just keep watching." All of a sudden, I see this monkey's pole come out.
3: And <gasps> I was, is that a is that a damn
1: monkey in there? And my wife said, "Yeah, that's what the guy was just saying to the to the to to, to, to the owner or whatever. The manager is in there." He was really freaking out because he, he said this thing scared the hell out of him. And every time and again, this thing where would shake wildly. And you'd see this pole stick out, and they would just sort of put the blanket over top of it again. Oh, wow. And I started thinking, I said, who the hell would bring a monkey into a restaurant? Who the hell would bring a monkey on the boardwalk in, in a basket? And then to do that, who would bring it into a restaurant?
0: Clint Eastwood.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, right. Like, <laughs> what? By the orangutan, right? right. Uh, which, every that which was way right? loose.
0: in every which way you yeah. can, and it was an ape, every which technically, way you can. But, yep. but yes, yep. it's true.
1: <laughs> but no, that that would have been cool. But it just it was just not something you expect to see at the table next year, while you're while you're sitting in a sitting in a restaurant, no matter what type of restaurant, you just don't expect to see someone bring a monkey in a basket.
0: <laughs> so, Doctor Shock was texting us about this. And we got all creeped out about it. Actually, it was kind of a creepy story, but I love that one.
1: Yeah, I was. I kept trying to take a picture of it, but it got a little awkward because the people could kind of see what I was doing, and of course, the thing didn't stick its paw out all that often. I would have just would have just looked like a regular sort of basket thing with a blanket over it. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. So I, I didn't. I didn't get a picture, but I really wanted to get a picture of it. <laughs> it was just. It was very bizarre.
0: What if you had gone up to them and said? Oh, my. What a beautiful baby. Can I take a picture of your yeah, baby? Right. Like
1: <laughs> well, like, like, uh, we were going back and forth, and then uh, Joel Robertson was with us on the Universal Monsters cast, and then mm-hmm. Retro Movie Geek, mm-hmm. he texted back, you know, what if it was like a, you look, and it's like one of those, like a, a monkey with a baby's face or something.
3: Oh,
0: yeah, exactly. You
1: know, it kind of reminded me of the dog from the, um, from the 70s invasion of the body snatchers.
0: <laughs> or the original uh, fly. Or something well, like the original that. fly,
1: yeah, and I think that yeah. would okay. freak me out a
0: little bit. Mm-hmm. That's awesome, I love it. So yeah, if you enjoyed that little campfire tale, we have another one later on in this episode. But um, real quick, and we're getting underway. I'm just, I'm just warming everybody up, listeners. So we're gonna get into some horror movie reviews, but uh real fast. Doctor Shock, did you see that over on Horror on the Go? Our friend Bill Shetty and Lady Phantom they released episode fifty-one of their show. And it was their top thirty horror movies ever.
1: I did. I did hear that. Yes.
0: Yes. Okay. I'm glad. I'm glad. Uh, yeah. Because well, one thing is, just so listeners know, it's like an hour long show. They quickly run down each of their thirty. You know, so it's sixty movies uh-huh. total. Uh-huh. Definitely worth your time. I'll link it in the show notes because I think you should check it out. But uh, Bill Shetty, in the be, <laughs> in the midst of it. He calls out our very own Dr. Shock on something uh, pertaining to Creature from the Black Lagoon. and so
1: Yes, he, he, had, he had taken me to task for saying he was a sympathetic uh, creature.
0: Yeah, in fact, I have the, um, I have the clip right here. I'll, I'll play
4: it for the listeners right here. And it is Creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm. How much scarier can you get when you're on an island and you got this fish-human... And I don't want to call somebody out, but I recently heard my good buddy, Dr. Shock, talk about this on a Universal episode on horror movie podcast. Jay of the Dead runs it. Get over there to them. They got a great show. But he thinks all of them were sympathetic to Universal. No, Doc, like watch it again. I think you haven't seen it. There was nothing to be sad about this creature. He came out of the water and killed people. He was going after people. They didn't go in after him to start the movie. He came out of the lagoon and Mm -hmm, killed people. That's why they're searching for these ancient remains. This is not a sympathetic character. This is a creature that killed and came out and killed.
1: (laughs) First off, let me say, I thought their lists were very impressive. I really did like their lists. I mean, they did sort yes. of run the gamut of horror. Um, mm-hmm. Even some silent movies on the list and everything, and, and uh, a lot of classics on there, too, which e- is really cool.
0: Even some surprises. So, There's
1: Some surprises. There were definitely some surprises, <laughs> yes. Did no, well, they have a definitely... criteria?
2: Or was this just based on what they
0: thought was best? Just their personal opinion of the...
1: personal opinions of top 30.
0: The 30 greatest horror of all time.
1: Oh, cool. they're, they're, I guess it would be sort of their like their favorites too
0: mm-hmm.
1: um but I guess that you know that would be their opinions of what the best are um and then we're just going back and forth, and he was just saying that he's just, he's just a killer the straight up killer, the creature from the black lagoon. I felt he was more sympathetic because a they sort of went into his territory, mm-hmm. um a lot of the other ones, Dracula, the invisible man, they travel and they do their you know do their dirty work uh, sort of on the road or they're willing to take it to other towns. Creature from a black lagoon, he was just sort of living his own life and then they sort of came in there.
0: Kind of like a la la Leatherface, right? In the first Texas Chainsaw.
1: Right. In the first Texas Chainsaw, right. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to be a killer. It's not like he wanted to kill. Um, He felt he was put in a position to do so. Yeah. Um, So I I looked at that. Plus, you know, the, the creature sort of falls for the girl. Julie Adams he falls for the girl mm-hmm. um, and you get that scene where he's just sort of watching her now there's no doubt he's he's you know he can he's he can be pretty tough when he wants to be and he's, he's definitely uh he's definitely a a killer
0: yeah because um yeah cause he initiates like the first kill within like ten or fifteen minutes of the, right. the film and yeah. it's kind of, it seems yeah, there's, unprovoked there's, there's, other than the fact that they're kind of on his turf yes
1: right yeah. And and obviously, they didn't go in there with the intention of of disturbing this creature. They didn't have any clue what was there. Um, But I just, uh, for that, I just felt that I I was looking at it sort of in in the broad um, spectrum of the universal monsters. Mm -hmm. How a lot of them were very sympathetic.
0: Nice. Um,
1: And I had thought that I had said that I felt that the creature was definitely somewhat sympathetic as well. Um, and those those were the reasons was you know he, he did sort of fall for the girl i didn't i didn't hate the creature let's put it
0: that way well and and to your defense dr shock even when a creature is a killer or a monster is a killer it can still be sympathetic because of you know there there can still be reasons to pity it even if it is the aggressor or the initiator of kills so mm-hmm. So, yeah, fair enough, but
1: but in the end, I mean, in the end, like it was, it was sort of friendly jabbing back and forth. I mean, right. It was not, and then I didn't, uh, you know, it's
0: fine. I know. I we actually go back and forth with Bill Shetty, and we have for years now, for seven years, <laughs> like, right, uh, yeah. about <laughs> this and that. But I actually recently watched uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, and I noticed something. This was within the past, I don't know, month or two. But I noticed do you remember in Jurassic Park and it's I mean this is obviously I think a nod or an homage to the creature from the Black L- Lagoon because in the beginning um, of Jurassic Park when we first meet um, John Hammond, he shows up in the field and he's dressed all in white and he surprises two of the researchers while they're they're working. I mean the one guy's diving. Mm-hmm. And then here in Creature from the Black Lagoon, 39 years earlier, you got the guy who discovers the the creature's hand. Um, he visits these researchers in the field while they're working, and he's wearing all white, head to toe. Oh, interesting! And he he commissions them and tempts them away from their work to come and see what he's he's got. And so I'm like, wow, that is exactly parallel. That has to be an homage, and you know yeah. Spielberg, I'm sure would do something along those lines. But. I, would,
1: I would think so. I mean, he was a fan of those films, you know, those, uh, the, the 1950s sci-fi movies and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what? The, probably, I mean, when, this is not really, we're not getting into the Creature in the Black Lagoon. Right. But for me, the creepiest scene in that movie is when the girl's out swimming and he's just sort of gliding underneath watching her. Mm-hmm. You yes. know, and she has no idea that anybody, that there's anything going on underneath the water. That just sort of whole sort of stalking thing, you know. I thought that was, and it was so well handled. I mean, that it it really is. It really is a classic.
0: Very cool, great
1: movie. You know.
0: Yes, it is. Yeah. So, anyways, make sure you all check out Horror on the Go. It's episode fifty-one. We'll have it linked in the show notes, and you can hear more about uh, Bill Shetty and Lady Lady Phantom's top thirty horror of all time.
1: Mm -hmm. And like you said, there are some surprises on there.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Certainly are. Okay, well, listeners out there, if this is your first time listening to Horror Movie Podcast, we actually have two different kinds of episodes. We either bring you a themed episode where we discuss certain horror subgenres and their conventions and such, or we bring you a variety show, kind of like this one we call it a Frankensteinian episode, and it's just a hodgepodge of whatever horror movie reviews or news or whatever we want to talk about. So, um, just to give you a sneak peek, tonight we'll be talking about It Comes at Night, 47 Meters Down, Uh, we have Cat's Eye. Our friend Matt going to be talking about that. 12 Feet Deep, Trapped Sisters, (laughs) and a bunch of other stuff. So let's get started here. Now, at this point in the show, we understand that we had listener requests. A lot of listeners were asking about a particular horror pets movie, a weird one called Uninvited from 1988. And so, because of our previous episode... We promised that we would get to it, and I'm sure uh, the Wolfman will have some words to say about this as well next time he's on the show. But let's move into our uh, review of Uninvited.
1: Uninvited, 1988. What it is is there's a, it turns around this, this, uh, I guess, Wall Street tycoon uh, named Walter Graham. And um, him and um, some of his associates, uh, specifically Mike Harvey, played by George Kennedy, and I guess his is uh, um, very very uh, uh, elderly uh bodyguard slash um, <laughs> uh, you know he he sort of roughs up he he takes care of the dirty work named Albert played by clue gallagher um, they're ready to skip town and they're going to get onto Walter's Luxury yacht and skip town um they want to get down to the Cayman Islands to clean out some money because uh, the uh Curious, and Exchange Commission is coming after them for something. You know, they they're he's a bit shady, Walter and his practices. Uh, so I think I guess, um, well, you no, know, he he's saying to make it to make it seem uh, more legitimate. He invites these two, you know, very pretty young girls along, uh, Rachel and or is it not Rachel? That might be. I'm, I'm looking at the credits here. Maybe it was Suzanne and Bobby. I think were their names. Mm-hmm. I can't. I can't remember who was the captain. And I can't, the characters sort of run together for me here for a little bit. To be honest with you. but anyway, it you know, these two good-looking girls on onto the yacht, um, and they have a party the night before, and then the next day they're ready to leave. And for some reason, these two girls approach these two college-age guys and say, "Hey, come along with us. You know, um, uh, we want you to sort of help us if this guy comes on to us and it's a luxury yacht and we get to have a free trip or whatever." Um, so these guys and their friend come along. Um, and the guys are like, one of them uh, really admires Walter Graham. Uh, another one is a wrestler. I guess he's more of an athlete. And the third guy is a biologist. I think he's studying to be a, a biologist. Mm-hmm. And they all, all five of them go. They get on the, the yacht. And originally Walter wasn't going to let the guys on, but then they realized they got to get out quicker than they thought originally. So they all get on the yacht. But there's also a cat that one of the girls had picked up, a really cute cat. Now, early in the movie, we found out this thing escaped from a um, uh, testing facility, <laughs> and it's got something very weird living inside of it. Uh, it's almost like a creature within the cat that just pops out every now and again, and, and uh, <laughs> well, it, it does some pretty nasty things. So this cat gets onto the yacht. Well, sure enough, eventually the cat does what the cat's going to do, um, and... uh you know, people start dying, and it, it gets down to the point where um, these people, they end up stranded on this yacht because the cat does something to sort of sabotage the yacht. I'm not sure why, but, you know, sort of sabotages <laughs> the yacht, and they're stranded in the middle of the ocean, and they've got to figure out a way, A, how to repair the yacht, and B, how to get rid of this uh, demonic cat. I'm guessing it's That's a right. demon inside of the cat.
0: It's something, yeah, something very interesting. So, so Matroid, you be our our listener surrogate here, um, because you have you seen Uninvited from
2: 1988? I started it. Oh, okay, just, I see. Just based on your request.
0: <laughs> uh, okay, <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> so... So for people, I mean, basically what you have here, and Dr. Shuck was done a great job describing it, this is a mutated killer cat movie. It finds nice. its way on board a yacht, and so this was written and directed by Graydon Clark, who was apparently a fan of alien because this is like a very poor man's low budget alien it's exactly the same sort of premise it's like the nostromo where you have this crew that's traveling on this vessel they're secluded and alone out in the nothingness of the surrounding abyss so it's not space in this case but it's a a yacht in the ocean like dr shock was saying and then you have this malevolent creature on board and in fact dr shock they even do this pseudo almost chest burster scene. Yeah. And, and I'm like, yes. I'm like, Great and Clark, sir. I hope you're gonna put a thank you to uh, you know O'Bannon and the crew for Alien. But anyways, this no is no one else did. <laughs> <All right.
2: laughs>
0: that's true, Madroid. Yeah. So I mean, that's what you have as a killer cat movie. And and Doc, you you told me today clearly. This cat situation—the thing that pops out of the inside of the cat—clearly it's, it's a, a, a it's a puppet. Yeah, it's
1: like a, it's a it's a hand puppet. It's it's what it is. Yeah, <laughs> it's a killer. It's a killer. It's a demonic hand puppet,
0: and it's hilarious, right, Dave? I mean, were you cracking up? I was cracking uh, up. Uh,
1: yeah, there, there was definitely some scenes where it's uh, it, it it stirred up some laughter. Yeah, when when you see this thing pop out of the. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So let me ask this, if it's okay. Please do. Uh, yeah. I didn't. I didn't preface with mine, but uh, this would this would qualify as well with Cat's Eye. Um, going back to some early episodes of horror movie podcast, were there cat uh, fake scares? Right, <laughs> Or the cat jump that or whatever you guys called it. So um, right, because there were there's a couple of those in Cat's Eye, and I was like, oh, I guess that works. I mean, the whole damn movie's about a cat anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. But right, I, I anticipate right.
0: that there's at least twelve. In this movie, yeah, but they're <laughs> they're legit though, right, Doctor Shock? They're not fake cat jump scares. They're well, actual. Oh no,
3: the,
1: the, the fake cat jump. The fake cat jump scares are someone opens a cabinet over their you know, over the stove, and a sure. cat screeches and jumps out, and or a cat runs by them and screeches on the ground, like, like that. Where where I've never. I've had a cat run by me hundreds of times that I owned and it's never screeched or, or <laughs> made noises it's run by me.
0: And you haven't um, lived. <laughs>
1: so, yeah. Right. Kidding. Right. And I know it happened in alien, you know, it happened in, and keeps seen an alien. Um, and I art, know it happened in,
0: you know, arsenic and, it, and old <laughs> lace, right? That's the yeah. earliest oh, that's one right. we know. That's the we earliest that one race, we can somebody, trace back. I think. Yes.
1: yes. Somebody brought that up. Yeah. Um, so well, yeah, when you have a cat as sort of one of the main characters, you can overlook that to a degree that it's going to jump out. And it's gonna, if there's going to be jump scares, it's going to involve a cat. Uh, and this movie does have one rather surprising scene, I thought, uh, because I thought one of the more interesting things about this demon and the cat was it's probably the only demon I've ever seen that goes after only bad people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You so know, it's like it's not, even, not even a bad guy.
1: Right and the, and the, but then you get one scene where you're kind of like oh, and you just weren't expecting it. I mean, it the the, the result of it is a little you know had me scratching my head a little bit um, as to what this guy does and what the person following him does, and then all of a sudden just gone. Um, but I thought that hey, that was kind of interesting. You know, I wasn't I was I didn't see that one coming.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I didn't see that one coming. That one was kind of a surprise.
0: Well, and this also has a like i and, and in certain, you could call it poisonous or infected, but it has yeah. an infection type element where if you're bitten by the cat, then weird things can happen to you as well, right, which is bizarre so
1: right yeah it, 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 it's like it poisons your blood um what was that what was that uh that he used to turn into a, a microscope oh that <laughs> was like that ship, the old the old ship uh, i don't know what it's called where they can Navigate with oh, it.
0: The sextant.
1: Sextant, and he turned it into a, a pretty effective microscope.
0: Yeah.
2: And
1: I know nothing about a sextant. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it is a
2: <laughs> and it's microscope. Not, and that's not possible.
1: <laughs> okay, all right, that's right. I know nothing about it. So I, I, I figured it, it probably wasn't likely. But, okay.
3: <laughs> I mean, I mean he, I he didn't just see blood. It happen, he just I'm blood.
1: Guessing it's he, impossible. He, he saw blood cells. I thought, you know, using this. This thing, and, wow! It's, uh, these uh, these ship tools are, are pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and and just, uh, I think what it is is there are times when the cat's sort of forgotten.
3: Yeah,
1: and you get the feeling that because most of the you know this this movie does have it is PG thirteen, so there's no extreme nudity or, or anything like that. It does have a couple love scenes in it. Yeah, almost. I think all of which happened after All Hell breaks loose.
0: Yeah, which is very unusual for a horror movie.
1: It is. It's very unusual because normally it happens before. They were filling time so they they didn't really, they didn't think they had a full length movie here, so they still let's let the girls you know take off their tops and let's let us let them get at it a little bit here. Um, just to <laughs> fill some time. Because it they're, they're not quick scenes. I mean they're not you know, stretched out extremely long either, but uh it's just kind of unusual that these people are stranded in the middle of the ocean, they're running out of food. Um, they're drinking champagne instead of water, which I think would be worse for you, because I think alcohol sort of dehydrates you more than hydrates you. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've gone to that instead of water. Um, but anyway, they're in that situation, and yet you know they still find time to carry on a little bit,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, <laughs> which, was, which was interesting. Uh, if it does have an, a, a pretty cool cast, McClue Gallagher, uh, of course, was, um, for horror fans, he was in Return of the Living Dead.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm, I'm fairly certain he played the father in Nightmare on Elm Street 2. I think that was him. Hmm. Um, playing the, the lead character's father in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Uh, and, of course, George Kennedy. I mean, the one thing you can say about the movie, it, it has an Oscar winner <laughs> in the cast, because George Kennedy won an Oscar for Cool Hand Luke. Oh, so,
3: uh, that's true. Uh,
1: Uninvited has an Oscar winner in its cast. Um, right. although George Kennedy I will not say um, even I've never seen George Kennedy sort of phone in a performance but I got the feeling he was doing that here
0: that's true yes Yeah, I, I agree
1: he, he didn't really really want to be there <laughs>
2: um, but isn't it any- the worst when you actually get that though when you find that uh, an Oscar winner is in something that maybe they shouldn't be like you're watching Surviving in the game and you're thinking F Murray Abraham what are you doing yeah, right. this is a movie right. where yeah. Ice T is the hero. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and by
3: you,
0: I, you won an Oscar in Amadeus guy. I know. Right. It's so sad. But by the way, Doc, you were right. Yeah, he was. um Clue Gallagher was Gallagher was Mister Walsh in The Nightmare on Elm Street too. Oh,
1: it's Gallagher, not Gallagher. Yeah, Gallagher. Okay.
0: Yes, you're right.
1: Um Yeah, I mean, I think of Return of the Living Dead mm-hmm. when, I, when I when I see him because he's like the, one of the. One of the main guys in that, but yes, he was the father and my Elf street true birth. Yeah. No. Um, okay. But anyway, but I mean, and his role is even more thankless. Like he's he's not around as long, and and for most of the time, you don't even know it's him. You, you know, it's not until later on that he even gets a few lines. He's just this old guy they have do the dirty work, and you just get the feeling he's way too old to be doing it. hmm
0: yeah.
1: I mean, he was he was playing older than he really was at that point. I think.
0: And that's hilarious, actually. I mean, that's kind of a funny part of the movie. It's like, um, why is this old man still one of your heavies if he's... Why, this, you know, why are you
1: giving this old man the job of disposing of the body? Yeah. He, you know, of killing and then disposing of the body when he's sitting there having a heart attack just holding the guy's... Early on, they, they, they hold this guy's head underwater and, and he's, all of a sudden he's like grabbing his left arm
0: afterwards. Uh, right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is a bizarre film, Uninvited, from 1988. I believe it was released straight to video, and it looks it. I mean, it's a very low-budget kind of movie, but it's one of those oddities of the 80s, honestly, and I think the reason it'll always be special to me now, because this was my first time seeing it, is I actually I opted th- through... Dr. Shock watched it before I did, and so I was, like, texting him today to find out if this is something I could show my 9-year-old son who loves horror or at least mm-hmm. he, th- he thinks he does. And and so right. he's seen a lot of the classic monster stuff. So I did show him this. You know, I needed to cover, you know, a certain scenes like with the, the intimacy and stuff. But as far as like the, right. ca- the killer cat monster thing, he just loved it and thought it was hilarious. So um okay. this is actually his introduction to 80s horror cinema. And it's... um. You know, he loved it, but it's a very bad movie. But even though it's a bad movie, it has that charm to it.
1: I could see people who were young, you know, at the time when this movie came out, being kind of, you know, kind of creeped out by it and, and you know, really liking it. I can't. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's one of those movies, and I'm not saying you had to be really, really young. I'm not saying you had to be like, what's your son, nine years old? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not saying you had to be nine years old, but, you know, I, and I can see this <laughs> being a nostalgia thing for some people. Um, but to see it now for the first time obviously it's and 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 the ending is just kind of wow, yeah
3: yeah, you know. I
1: mean, i don't want to go i don't want to go into it, but right, you know it, it's it, you you look at this ending and you're just like holy cow, ca- especially the the very the last <laughs> handful of scenes at sea
3: yeah
0: yeah, you
1: know you you are just kind of like what okay okay they <laughs> But I don't want me to go into it. I don't want to go into it.
0: So here's the the context under which you would show this movie and invite friends over. Like, if you have people coming over, and maybe they don't necessarily like horror movies, or maybe they've... Um, criticized your movie choices in the past. We've all had mm-hmm. friends and family members who were uh, like obnoxious about that and say, right. I don't want you to pick the movie, blah, blah, blah. And so this was a hilarious kind of movie to put on for people and subject them to it. It's PG-13. It's fairly mild as far as horror goes. And if you're having a bunch of non-horror fans over for like a Halloween party or something, I say put on Uninvited from 1988 and I'm grateful for the listener's for uh insisting that we review it. And so for me, Dave, yeah. I don't know about you, <laughs> but this thing for me I'm gonna give this a four out of ten. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's it's pretty bad, but I it has its charms and I would call it a low priority rental. What do you say, Doctor Shock?
1: I I would probably come in right there with you. I would say a four. Um, I don't wanna give it any more than that, but I wouldn't I wouldn't feel right going lower than that either. And yeah, I'd say low priority rental. Um, okay. But, uh, but going 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 into it knowing that you're not you're not going to be seeing a classic
3: here. Mm. You know,
1: this is just sort of a. It's an eighties throwback. It's not, and like you said, it's not a good movie by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, um, yeah, I I guess I could, I would say very low priority rental. Okay. Put it in your queue and let it fester there for a while. And then maybe one day you will get around to
0: it. That's right. And yeah, because that's how it works. <laughs> yeah. <I'm> <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, Wolfman Josh is not off the hook. He is still expected by the uh, listeners to watch Uninvited from 1988. Now, uh, this mm-hmm. this is on Amazon Prime video. So if you have Prime, you could stream it. Or you could pay 99 cents to rent it on Amazon. Or I think it was like three bucks to buy it. <laughs> so... I,
1: would, I, I wouldn't, I can't recommend the three bucks buy. You know, I, I mean, the 99% <laughs> is about as fun. If you have the Prime membership, that's the really, really the way to go.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Especially if, if you, but don't get a Prime membership just for that.
0: And that's true, that's true. There you go. <laughs> All right, then.
1: It's so, interesting how you say that about, like, with movie choices, because I've always been the, Movie guy in in my family in my circle, mm-hmm. um, but nobody asked me anything like that, and and I never question why. I never. Well, it's because of horror, you know. Not too many of them. But my family is not into horror um, and those type of movies. But I just remember one day I'm just talking movies with my brother, and he's like, "Oh, I'll never ask you for it." what are you talking about? I've seen like all the classics and everything, and he's like, yeah. well, 'cause I came over your house one time and you were watching a movie about a bunch of midgets on Easter Island." <laughs> And I'm like, oh, that's right. It came over when I was watching Even Dwarf Started Small one time.
0: <laughs> oh, Dave. I know. I know. People think we're weird, but... Yeah. We yeah,
1: keep- because I really like Even Dwarfs Started Small. Yeah.
0: That's,
1: that's, you know, I guess it doesn't doesn't help my case. But, yeah, and, and that's just kind of the, the way it is. That's if, why this community is, is so good, because, you know...
0: They don't judge. Exactly. What would you say, Matt?
2: i was going to say if it wasn't for steven dorf the gate is not the movie that it is
0: mm-hmm. correct i
2: that love that true. movie you guys just reviewed it i actually so i bought that movie and i, I sent josh a text i was like hey if you're going to review the gate anytime soon i want to be on that episode and he said we reviewed it last night oh man
0: <laughs> that's awful timing it was
1: calm. Uh, yeah Answer wow away.
0: i'm so sorry
1: can,
2: good episode, yeah. good episode.
0: all right <laughs> As with most of our shows, this episode has been recorded out of sequence, of course. I mean, this especially happens on Frankensteinian episodes. Dr. Shock and Matroid are only able to join me for a limited time in this episode. Plus, they haven't seen the movies that I'll be discussing throughout the night. So in order to break up the solo casting, I'm going to try something where I spread the wealth and distribute Dr. Shock and Matroid segments throughout the show in between my solo casting segments and I'll do the same with some listener feedback as well just for good measure. So on one hand it might seem weird to you as you listen that Dr. Shock and Matroid will be coming and going throughout the episode but at least you won't have a group podcast for the first half and a less exciting show like a solo cast for the second half. Having said that let's move into my feature review Of 47 meters down.
3: I wanna make a toast. Thank you so much for bringing me on vacation. Cheers.
4: Seriously, you have to try. It's totally safe. Welcome aboard.
0: There! Look! Kate, I don't know about this. Adios!
3: Oh, my God, this is amazing.
0: Jeez. 47 meters down. Okay, first of all, for those of us who are not on the metric system, for some reason, uh, 47 meters down is approximately somewhere around 154 feet. I looked it up. And supposedly this film sat on a shelf for quite a while, Maybe a year or so. That's what I've heard. And then it was eventually released online. It was like a VOD. And it actually got some good buzz. I guess there were some horror sites somewhere. (laughs) I'd like to know who these mythical sites were. I'm just kidding. But uh, I guess they liked it and they were appreciating it. So it had some good buzz. And since the Shallows did pretty well last summer, they decided to give this a theatrical release. And so here we go. Now, I wasn't expecting Hamlet or anything like that, but I was expecting this movie to be fun. And as I asked in my review over on Movie Podcast Weekly, will any shark movie ever be able to compete with Jaws? And I think the answer to that is no. Jaws was made by a master filmmaker, even at the beginning of his career, but still, you can watch Jaws and. The characters alone are enough to keep you engaged in that movie, much less the shark, which you don't see most of the time. Everybody's very familiar with how Jaws works, but it's impressive that that's a shark movie with not very much shark, and it's still engaging. Now, our friend Kagan also talked about how movies just can't live up to Jaws, and they'll always be compared to Jaws way back when we reviewed The Shallows together last year, and I just think every shark movie is going to be in its shadow and I hope that one of these days it would be amazing if we could find a shark movie to outdo Jaws, but more than likely every shark movie will always be found wanting, but stick with us here on Horror Movie Podcast because, you know, we're going to see about that. We've actually got a special shark episode coming up for you very soon, so make sure you subscribe in iTunes for free to make sure you don't miss it. Commercial for this podcast. Yes. Anyway, 47 Feet Down is another survival horror film, which I love. You know, I love those listeners. I am in. If it's survival horror, I'm in. If this could happen to me in real life, then it's my kind of story. So you have people who get stuck in a dangerous situation. And the longer they're stuck in this dangerous situation, the more deadly it becomes. It's like a perishable predicament. And I saw this in the theater on opening night, the Friday it opened. Yes, I know there are people who had seen it already on VOD like way before, but you know, for a theatrical release, I was there. And so this was directed and written by uh, Johannes Roberts, who was the director and co-writer along with Ernest Riera. It stars Mandy Moore from This Is Us fame, the TV show that's very popular nowadays, and then... Claire Holt, and you might recognize Claire from The Vampire Diaries. So here's the premise to 47 meters down. You've got two sisters vacationing in Puerto de la Paz, Mexico, and they decide to go cage diving so they can look at sharks from underwater, from inside the safety of this steel cage, presumably. (laughs) But when their cage harness breaks, they sink to the bottom of the ocean floor, 47 meters down or 154 feet and with limited oxygen and sharks circling above. So this is one of those, uh, what in the world would I do if I were in this situation? First of all, I've um, not done scuba diving myself, but I have, you know, spent time in a pool and I've, <laughs> you know, I would go diving for things, you know, like one time my wedding ring Um, came off my finger in the deep end. So I, and uh, coincidentally, I was in Mexico when this happened, as I recall. And I dove down to the bottom of the pool and just 12 feet down, 12 feet deep, trapped sisters. (laughs) Sorry, that's coming later. But anyways, 12 feet deep, uh, my ears felt like they were going to explode. And so I can't imagine being in a shark cage and sinking 154 feet <laughs> to the bottom of the ocean. I just can't even comprehend what that might be like. Anyways, I guess I'm kind of a wuss that way, but this film is one of those situations where as you watch it, you're, you just try to troubleshoot in your mind, you know, okay, well, what would I do? In order for this to be one of those uh, perishable predicament type of movies, they usually have to have some sort of ticking clock uh, convention in the screenplay. And in this screenplay, it's actually a very credible one where you have the air, the oxygen left in their air tanks, you know, because if that runs out, of course they die. And so that creates urgency. So they can't stay below for too long due to the air tank dilemma. And then if they leave the cage, then they risk being devoured by sharks. Of course, uh, plus, this is even more dangerous and more complicated because since they're 150 feet underwater, that means that they have to ascend very slowly and in stages in order to avoid the bends, not the Radiohead album, but, but that condition that happens if you come up too fast from being deep underwater. And uh, it's uh, possibly fatal too, by the way. So anyway, let's talk about some logistics here with this film. Uh, when I initially heard the premise, I'm like, okay, wait a second, wait a second. So, so they're going to be stuck underwater in this cage. And so wouldn't the whole movie just sound like, blo, 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 you know what I mean? Like, I'm, just like, I'm just like, how are they going to communicate and how are we going to tolerate this? And so I can answer that for you. They have these internal headsets where they can chat back and forth with each other And we can hear them just fine. Now, um, I will say, side note, there are a lot of like air tank and breathing sounds in this. And yes, it adds to the realism, but at the same time, it does get a little bit annoying. That's just a nitpick. I'm not taking away from the film for that, but I'm just putting it out there. Um, You know, so there are aspects of this film having to do with them being underwater and trapped underwater that are a little less pleasurable, but I'll talk about those in a minute. So Mandy Moore's character, she has real problems in her life, okay? And this is a very common thing with horror movies. Now, a lot of times I'll say horror happens to those who deserve it least, right? But with this particular character, it's not like she's dying of cancer or anything. She's just gone through a recent breakup. And so from her character's perspective, sure, Those problems are substantial and she's very distracted by this. And so she's going down on this vacation here with her sister so she can, you know, go down to Mexico and have a good time. Well, um, it's really interesting. And I think a lot of fun to see a character that, that thinks she has problems and then she gets real problems because (laughs) things get very real and much more severe than a, a mirror breakup when you're stranded beneath the water with sharks circling you. So that's kind of interesting. I love to see that dynamic play out in horror films. It's something I really appreciate about horror cinema. Another thing that's cool about horror cinema is how it tends to punish the foolish and immoral. Now, I think it's so interesting how a lot of religious groups often come after and criticize um, horror films because they call them Immoral, But what's so interesting is a lot of times uh, the the horror premise is built upon punishing those who make immoral decisions. And so that's very fascinating. And in this particular film, it's a little more subtle, but you still have um, those who are foolish and immoral being punished. You've got uh, people here who take risks. Okay, so they're taking unnecessary risks with their lives and they end up in a troublesome situation. You got... Um, those who lie, I mean, there's some lying that goes on in this film. And so like, for example, Mandy Moore's character, um, she has to lie to them and say, yeah, I'm diving certified. I, I know what I'm doing and she doesn't know what she's doing. And of course, you know, that's, that's you, you would assume that that would complicate matters and that would be like a setup and payoff, but honestly it doesn't really pay off. And because of how, um, fairly adept she is at handling herself underwater and like, you know, dealing with her air tanks. It actually makes the film less credible. But anyway, the point is to all this, she lies. There's this um, invitation of monsters or opening themselves up to monsters. Uh, this is very common theme as far as immorality goes in like possession films or like, you know, the Ouija or Ouija, <laughs> Ouija board films, where uh, people are uh, toying with things that they should not be toying with, right? And so, uh, I guess, and I didn't know if this was a law or something, but according to the film, it it's illegal to like put chum, you know, the bloody fish chunks in the water to attract sharks, and supposedly that's illegal. And they do it anyway to try to attract the sharks around the cage so they can get a good show and see a bunch of sharks while they're underwater. And so here you have characters who foolishly invite monsters about them. And then you have rule breakers, you know, because like I said, it's against the rule to do that and breaking the law. And then there's also, um, I guess, the penalty of being artificial or trying to be something that you're not Because in this film, one of the things that the Mandy Moore character wants to do is to have a rip-roaring, wild good time and to prove to her ex-boyfriend that she is really fun after all. And so she's trying to be somebody that she's not by taking risks. And that's how she's persuaded to even get in this shark tank situation. (laughs) The shark cage. And, um, you know, so these are a few of the instances And as I said, more subtle, but horror films tend to punish the foolish and immoral. And that's what's happening here. Something I admire about this film, and this is also fairly subtle, but uh, in horror stories, they usually don't, horror itself does not exist within the context of the film, right? A lot of times you're watching a horror movie and it's like, why would they go off alone? Haven't they ever seen a horror movie before, right? And then so until we had, movies that were more self-aware and I know Scream wasn't the first that did this. We've talked about that before, but it is, uh, one of the best at doing this. And so in Scream, for example, they're extremely aware of horror tropes and horror cinema and all the rules and so forth. But a lot of times in horror films, you know, they just, they don't really get it that there is, there is this disastrous potential consequence, right? But in this film, uh, they make a, just an offhanded reference to, like, you know, before getting in the shark cage, it's like uh, one of the characters says, I've heard horror stories about this before. And so I think it's it's really interesting that they even bring up the fact that this could be a horror story or a horror-related experience because usually the characters are dumb and unsuspecting, right? <laughs> and so another thing that I think... That this film does. That's kind of interesting is, um, for a little while, part of what it does is once they sink to the bottom and these are not spoilers, I'm telling you, of course, because I don't, I, I would give you a warning for spoilers, but we, we don't really know what the boat is doing. Okay. Cause, um, you know, there's the boat that's sponsoring this cage diving trip. And when the cage breaks and sinks to the bottom, They're really far down. They can't see up to the top of the water. And so for a a while, at least, a little while, we are just as in the dark as these two sisters are. And I love that because you don't know if the boat decided to take off or if the boat's even there or what they're doing to try to rectify the situation. You have no idea. And so I think that's very interesting too. And I think one of the missteps of this film is, you know, we, we eventually um get more insights but it's not like it's not like one of those movies where it's like okay let's cut to what the girls are going through and now let's cut to what they're saying up on the boat and and for a while we didn't have any other insights we were just as in the dark as the two girls and i think that adds to the scariness so if there are horror filmmakers out there listening if you care any any degree about this one fan's opinion and that's all i am i'm just a horror fan it actually is better, I think, to put your audience in the same um, situation. Usually, there are exceptions to this, but I'm just saying to, to have your audience just as clueless and just as scared um, as the characters, the victims themselves. A couple other positive things. Um, the film gets into the story pretty fast. I like that. I mean, I think they're in the cage within the first like 10 minutes or something. I think I wrote that down. I just, I overlooked it in my notes, but and, and also this film is bright and colorful. Um, the, the shots that are not underwater right now, it's not as gorgeous as the cinematography in the, the shallows, for example, right. With Blake lively, but, um, you know, it's a good looking film while they're above water. Once we get underwater, you know, it's, it's kind of dim. Of course it's dimly lit cause they're pretty far down and Honestly, it, I mean it adds to the realism so I can't criticize it that much, but it's not as fun to watch because it's a little bit hard to see. Your your view is obscured and of course part of that is is put to good use in cloaking the, the threat and the horror out there. So that's kind of interesting. But I think one of my biggest criticisms of this film 47 meters down is that it doesn't seem to know or understand whatsoever how sharks work or behave, right? It's like they never even thought to consult a marine biologist and who knows, you know, maybe that's expensive, but it's like, have you never even watched Shark Week? Not even once? Because just for example, they chum the water, they put this bloody fish in the water and immediately, bam, like immediately sharks start showing up and they're aggressive and you know... There they are, and it's like, ooh, sharks, right? But later in the film, you have characters who are bleeding quartz into the open water. You have characters, you know, just bleeding so much in the water, and sharks are nowhere to be found. And this is even after the sharks were kind of made aware that it's dinner time in this area. And and you could say, jay of the dead maybe you're the one that doesn't know about sharks maybe not so if we have a marine biologist listening to this if you tell me that you know sharks would be there for the chum stuff but they're always cruising always looking for food so they might you know get bored and head off somewhere else fine i don't believe it a shark can smell like <laughs> it can perceive and pick up on like 1 1 billionth of a particle of blood across 5 miles or something ridiculous <laughs> That's not the exact statistic, but it is something mind-blowing like that. And so if there's so much blood in the water, the sharks would be attracted back. I'm just saying um, this is BS, the way it goes in this movie. These sharks are merely merely like plot devices. They show up when the screenplay requires it, and and they're not like a legitimate natural world existing type of threat. And what I mean by that is, If you've ever seen Sharknado, (laughs) and yes, that's kind of the kiss of death on my opinion for this film, you know, the Sharknado sharks, it's so weird and quirky when those show up and when they appear, it's like, you know, they're there when you need them to be there basically. And that's the same case with this. These sharks do not behave in a natural way. As I understand sharks, as I've seen sharks, you know, And I've watched Shark Week a lot, so I'm just saying that's ridiculous, and I'm just going to put it out there. Now, if we have a marine biologist listener or shark expert who wants to set me straight, by all means, feel free. I don't believe it. It's kind of dumb. And the other thing, you know, because the sharks do show up from time to time, (laughs) you get lots of close calls, and uh, it's very frustrating, to be honest with you, because uh, for most of the film and I'll just kind of leave it at this for most of the film there are only um you know the two people down in the water and there are two main characters so of course you're not gonna have sharks like chomping on them in the first like 15 minutes of the film right and and eating these characters and stuff like that so we have lots of close calls and honestly sharks are such effective hunters and these girls are such sitting ducks down there it, it's really ridiculous you know they just try to ramp up the suspense and um, it's it's not working here and I'm very sorry to report that to everybody but that's the truth Um, films like this when you have these characters stuck in a situation this is kind of interesting to me they often have a lot of bickering or blaming and infighting this film does not have that which I think is kind of um, refreshing so there's a good point for 47 meters down and at the same time, films like this often end up having like this heart to heart conversation between the characters and this one does have one such conversation and so, if you're writing a film of this nature, you know often you have the infighting and the heart to heart talk, so this has one of those at least um We talked about the darkness and how the dimness makes it difficult to see and I think this film, I won't go into spoilers of course, but 47 meters down tries something pretty bold with the ending, but it absolutely does not work for me. I have to give some props and give some respect to at least trying something that was, you know, I guess a little bit outside the box. But um I, I know like Willis Wheeler, the wild man, was over on Movie Podcast Weekly and talked about this film with me, and he hated <laughs> the way this ends. And um, you know, I can see why people would feel that way. I admired it to some degree, but I'm like, yeah, even though that's kind of kind of ballsy, you know, like I'm like, uh, I don't think it works. The bottom line though, and this is where I we get down to brass tacks listeners, if you're going to take away anything that I say about 47 meters down, it is this. This film has kills, okay? But it is so unfulfilling because we don't see anything speak of. I mean, truly. And I don't think it's a matter, just a matter of it being PG-13. Although I do blame some of that on the PG-13 rating. If this thing had been R, it would have been a lot more serious business. But then the other thing is like, okay, it's PG-13. So that's one problem. They can't show a lot with the kills. But what I'm telling you is like, they show hardly anything along those lines, even though there are people who get killed. Um, And then I wondered if this is a budgetary. Restriction. I mean, is this something that, um, you know, they didn't have the budget to try to pull this off, especially since it's very difficult to film a production in water, on the water, around the water. I mean, that, that is exceptionally hard for filmmaking. And so I can only imagine what special effects in the water would be in order to try to, you know, pull off a shark attack in a credible way. So on Twitter at horror movie cast, I wrote the following is not a spoiler, though it is unclassy. <laughs> 47 Meters Down is a quote unquote blue balls horror movie. Hashtag high and dry. And I was pretty proud of that. <laughs> it asks a lot of the audience, but it gives us very little in return. It is very unfulfilling. It teases us with the promise of a very upsetting, scary, bloody awful shark movie and so my um you know i i came down basically with this sharks are a primal natural fear i mean that's genuinely scary that's something that we can universally understand i don't want to be eaten by a wolf of the sea right but even if you're not a marine biologist or a shark a Shark week expert, right? You can clearly tell that this movie has no basis in reality. As I've said, it, I, it does not seem to portray actual shark behavior. And so the movie ends up pulling its own teeth. It is a toothless affair. And so the other tweet I wrote was uh, the first 25 minutes has so much promise for this survival horror movie, but it's downhill from there. One problem, it's PG-13. Another problem, it doesn't deliver the goods. I give 47 meters down a 4.5 out of 10, and I am telling you to avoid it. Okay, as I promised earlier in the show, I said that we would be bringing you a campfire tale from some listener feedback. And for those who are new to Horror Movie podcasts, what our campfire tales are, uh, they're typically stories of real-life things that happen that are usually have a horror slant or are truly terrifying or mildly terrifying. It just varies. But right here, we have a really good one. This comes from the Eval Dead. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's it because it's AKA Al from the Great Red North. That's the horror nickname that he gave to Canada. And so he goes by it the Eval Dead. I'm pretty sure that's how it's pronounced. Anyways, Eval Dead writes. Hey guys, after recently listening to all the older episodes since October, I was reminded of a little campfire story that I'd like to share with you. First, a little backstory. I work in the main kitchen of a long-term care facility, and Jay, your nursing home incident story happens more often than you think, as one of just a few dozen men out of a staff of 400 plus We get catcalled, grabbed, or half-jokingly propositioned by female residents almost weekly. (laughs) I pre-cook and portion the food to be sent out to the other 13 home areas for service. I had become very close early on with a resident named Joyce, a former minister who had very advanced MS, leaving her only capable of moving her head and left arm and unable to speak. Despite this, I was capable of understanding her, and we had developed ways to communicate to the point where we could make small talk without her saying a word. Part of my job was to put away the dishes from the other areas that they returned after supper, and every night, like clockwork, Joyce would arrive at the far end of the kitchen at 6pm, move her electric chair back and forth, which caused a clicking sound to get my attention, And I'd go over, help her fill her mug with her (laughs) Coca-Cola. I love Joyce already. Uh, Break up her chocolate bar into pieces and then we'd have a chat. I'd ask her about her day and she'd motion to me asking about my wife and son. Fast forward a few years and I had just returned from taking some time off when my youngest was born. That night, 6 o'clock rolls by and I hear the distinct clicking I walk to the door looking at my phone, getting ready to show Joyce pictures of the baby, and when I look up, no one was there. The next day I'm telling a coworker about how Joyce was getting sneaky, and I saw her face drop. Then she delivered the cliche movie line, Oh, no one told you? Joyce passed away a week ago. Now, I'm a skeptic when it comes to ghosts. I've heard all sorts of stories in that building, which is to be expected for a place that's been there for 100 years and was used as a triage area for immigrants and refugees during World War II, a morgue, and now a place where people came to live out their last few years. I know the brain can play tricks on us and make us see and hear things that we want to see and hear, but... Maybe it was a new piece of equipment that had been recently put in that was stressing the electrical panel, causing a breaker to jump and click, but a little part of me still believed I was encountering the ghost of a close friend, one who didn't have a chance to say a proper goodbye. It's been a couple of years since the first time it happened, but to this day, despite my logical explanations, whenever I hear that clicking noise when I'm alone in the kitchen at night, I'll stop and quietly say... Hi Joyce, then go about my work. Anyways, I just want to say keep up the great work. I'll keep trying to chime in from time to time on the message boards and Twitter and anxiously await new episodes every other Friday. It feels like I wait much longer between episodes now that I don't have one hundred plus episode back catalog to rifle through. Signed the Evil Dead, aka Al from the Great Red North. That's the horror nickname that he gave to Canada. So <laughs> he fell Dead. Uh you're right. It is longer between episodes because I mean, the, your fellow listeners would tell you that because, um, usually I'm a day or two late. So I apologize about that. But brother, first things first, I believe you about this. Okay. I, I, this, it, it gives me chills. I'll admit it. I, Cause I read it first all the way through before recording this and I had chills then. And then I had chills the second time. And so it's a powerful story. But honestly, I think it's totally real. I think that's your friend Joyce. And the other thing I want to say, I like to point this out. A lot of people think that horror fans, you know, the people of our ilk, of our horror community, are a bunch of sickos or weirdos or something. But the thing is, if anybody reads between the lines here, what you have is a, a very compassionate person <laughs> in our friend Evil Dad. And um, I think it's really cool that you were such a a positive force in this lady's life the last few years. I mean, I know those people are often very lonely. I spent a lot of time in nursing homes, not, not as much as you have, but I'm just saying I admire and respect that, and I'm sure you came to mean a lot to her. So it makes perfect sense, Evalded, that Joyce would come to visit you from time to time. Anyway, the last thing on that, my friend, is I... Thank you for listening to all the Horror Movie Podcast back episodes. Just in case you didn't find them yet, we do have a back catalog of the weekly Horror Movie Podcast, which was the very first incarnation of this show. And Evil Dead probably knows about this already, but in case you're a new listener, we have like 26 episodes that are pretty wild. It's a lot of fighting and bickering and <laughs> in a good way. And uh, that's a really cool show. I love the format on that. And then we did a very short second show called Horror Metropolis. And that was really fun too. There's an epic battle between Dr. Shock and me that goes on way too long. And I think that's in episode 10 of Horror Metropolis. Anyways, make sure that you uh, check those out if you haven't already. And once again, Evaldead, thanks for sending in your campfire tale. And tell Joyce hello From the HMP community. On Horror Movie Podcast. We don't reveal spoilers in our reviews. But if we are going to talk about spoilers. We always give you a warning. So right now we're going to discuss Stephen King's Cat's Eye horror anthology from 1985 and we will be revealing some spoilers. Now I don't think we'll be covering every major plot point, but in order to chat about the movie, we will be going into some spoiler type material. So if you haven't seen Cat's Eye from 1985 and you don't want to be spoiled, then watch it first before listening to this next review. Okay, Matt, they've been warned. Now let's go ahead and talk a little bit about Cat's Eye.
2: Yeah, uh, Cat's Eye. Let me, I'll I'll give you a little bit of uh, background on the movie. So 1985 is when Cat's Eye came out and it's uh, written by Stephen King, the screenplay. And then of course, uh, pulls from a lot of Stephen King stories uh, directed by Louis Teague. Louis Teague has not done a tremendous amount of stuff that we'd all be familiar with um stars Drew Barrymore, James Woods, Alan King and uh Frank Welker doing what he does best not the voice of curious george. <laughs> um it's kind of an anthology so it's very much like this episode here three unrelated stories that are tied together loosely um by a stray cat, right? So it's yes. It's a fascinating movie. I first saw it when I was quite young. Um I can't recall how I know that it was one of the only movies that my mom would let me rent. That was rated uh PG 13 beca- or one of the only horror movies because it was rated PG 13. And uh, even though there is uh, a head that is lopped off and removed uh, from a person's body, even though there are quite horrific elements to the movie uh, PG 13. So that said, I, I I'm a huge Stephen King fan uh, for the, I don't know how many, third time maybe now, I'm, I'm reading the Dark Tower series because I'm highly anticipating the movie coming out, even though I'm tremendously nervous and do not think it'll be very good. Hmm. Uh, I love Idris Elba. I love Matthew McConaughey, that notwithstanding. Uh, I'm worried. That said, uh, Cat's Eye is very much one of the better Stephen King movies. So a lot of Stephen King movies end up suffering from what I like to call no one takes it serious enough. <laughs> um, so you know and, and unfortunately as horror and fans we have that problem where there's something that could be great but it's not given the funding or the the talent resource uh, you know a, a director like mick garris for example is forced to kind of come forward and do a bunch of stephen king movies is mick garris a bad director not necessarily but he's certainly not in the Parthenon of great directors and not a lot of great directors handle uh, what I consider fairly cerebral horror, you know, without it being more right. on the, along the lines of like filler or a uh, Hitchcockian type horror. So when you got a movie like cat's eye, where there's quite literally a tiny little, uh, I guess it's a, a, a goblin of some kind. They don't really say specifically, and it's not a spoiler because it's on the cover of the poster, the poster, the cover of the, the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. when that is an element of your movie and you're trying to sell it to adults, that you're not just not going to get a director that's really going to take it very seriously. However, the movie features some absolutely incredible ideas, uh, some of Stephen King's best stuff on film. Uh, Quitters, Inc. happens to be the first segment where, um, and you guys have seen this movie, I I believe, right? Am I wrong on that? Yes. No, I've seen it, yep. So Quitters, Inc. is is a fantastic uh, idea because essentially you've got, Someone, James Woods, always overacting in the best way. Um,
3: right, <laughs> you know he,
2: as only James Woods can do. Even when he's commenting on life, he's overacting. It's great. His teeth do a lot of the work. It's good. Um, you know he he's a smoker and he tries an extreme program at the request of a friend to get him to quit. And because it's Stephen King, this isn't a merely, uh, or this isn't merely like your your average quit smoking campaign right um right, you know right. family is threatened with their lives quite literally people are following uh james woods all over the place at all times he's promised someone will be watching him including somebody in his uh closet one night in the middle of the night mm-hmm. um and, and it sounds kind of hokey but it's that would be an absolutely horrifying thing yeah. if you considered uh what would come of that if, if your entire life was dictated by The the very scary idea that you can't slip up even once.
0: Yeah. If you mess up, there are repercussions.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And and repercussions of of the you know, this is horror movie podcast. We can get as uh, frank as we need to. But uh, the promise that his wife will be raped if he fails to uh, quit smoking. So and then later killed. So it's kind of a horrifying premise to start out the movie. Um, which is really cool because it, it gives you an idea of what you're in for. Uh, we do see Cujo, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. a, a, a large, rabid St. Bernard, which can only be Cujo, even though it's not mentioned by name. Uh, tons right. and tons of little Easter eggs from other stuff that Stephen King has done. And I think it's the same cat from The Cat from Outer Space, but I'm probably wrong on that. <laughs> um,
1: Could be. And it's, it, and it's a, you're talking about opening scene with, with Cujo, and then they're almost hit by a... Uh... What
2: is it? A 58 Plymouth. A fury. fury. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that actually says but a I am Christine. Pretty, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but it's pretty cool. I mean, it's, it's weird, right? So it's got, even though Alvin, Alvin Silvestri does the, uh, or Alan Silvestri, pardon. Mm-hmm. He does the, uh, the score, which, you know, he does some good stuff. I thought he's, he handled the Captain America, uh, score quite well recently, He's, in, he's got a great catalog of, of, uh, of work under his name. It's really bad. Really bad, rich 80s Cynthia tones. Um, you know, like, just not not a good horror movie score, but it's, it's memorable in that it sucks so bad. Um, and you've got really weird things that... Uh, that kind of come in later as you, you start to find out what the cat may be doing. The cat is clearly on a journey and a mannequin turns into Drew Barrymore in a very uh, ethereal state saying, I need your help. Come help me. It's so weird. And, and I, I found out that it's because uh, originally Teague had wanted there to be a, a prologue that kind of explained what the cat was doing, mm-hmm. why the cat was running through these stories and what the purpose was. And they omitted it from the movie that, uh, Made it very confusing. I watched it with my 13-year-old daughter, and she was like, I don't get it. Yeah. She enjoyed it. And at the end, you kind of figure out, okay, the cat's on its journey to save this little girl from this gnome that's trying to steal her breath. Which I think dates uh-huh. back to the idea that cats steal the breath of people. It's why <laughs> they don't want them to sleep on you. Yes. I heard that growing up. but That's why my parents said we couldn't get a cat. I think it was bullcrap, but whatever. Right. <laughs> totally agree. Uh, but, but it's interesting. And In this, you know, it's like, does the cat, is the cat. Does the cat have the touch? As uh, would be that—that's rhetoric or, or or language specifically from The Dark Tower, also known as The Shine. Does the cat have the shine? Is that how the cat is picking up on uh, not at the ones that they Overlook, but maybe um, is that how the cat's picking up a Drew Barrymore? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, just kind of weird stuff like that throughout the movie.
0: Yeah, but it's really, it's a lot of fun. And I'm glad you brought up Cujo because, yeah, that was one that Louis Teague directed that is one of my all-time favorites. But it's cool that Matt volunteered. I, I told Matt when he came onto the show, I'm like, hey, bring whatever you want to the table, whatever you want to review. So this is a great teaser because uh, we'll have some uh, Stephen King coverage. So for you hardcore Stephen King fans, we've got some something special planned later in the year. So this is a great warm-up, Matroid. So and that's why I did it. It's <laughs> a good teaser. So, what do you rate, Cat's Eye, then, Matroid? Uh,
2: well, before I give you a rating, if it's okay, I just want to mention a couple of small things. Sure. Um, there's a really bizarre scene where uh, an older gentleman named Alan King—you definitely recognize this guy's voice—he's mm-hmm. um, uh, he, wearing a silver suit and dancing to a cover of "Every Breath You Take" by the Police. It is the most <laughs> bizarre thing. Um, really quite weird the song 96 tears it, which is one of my favorite songs from that weird 60s era uh, okay. is awesome and it's featured prominently in one of the segments um, goat and tuna cat food <laughs> which um, does not sound as good as maybe the cat thinks it is wow. and then of course the one an all-time most realistically frightening concepts in a movie such as this uh, the idea of having to walk around a building on a small ledge (laughs) to satisfy a bet. Um, Mm -hmm. Quite cool and and truly horrific. So uh, neat ideas, great reasons to watch this movie. I would actually probably give it like a seven, um, a seven out of 10, simply because if you didn't watch it when you were younger, there's probably a lot less to get from this movie. But as anyone who listens to the sci-fi podcast should certainly know by now, uh, uh, a sucker for nostalgia factor Mm -hmm. uh i i believe you know joel and ryan those guys actually have like flat out terms for right uh chronic nostalgia disorder or whatever oh yeah Um, right (laughs) and and i suffer from that heavily you know there's no reason i think critters is one of the greatest horror movies ever made horror sci-fi it's not but because of when (laughs) i saw it it is and cat's eye for me was one of those um watch it when you're having a sleepover mm-hmm. when you're having a slumber party it was like ghoulies 2 was another one like that um <laughs> totally so it's not a great movie but there's a lot to love in it and i think it's absolutely a movie that every horror fan should watch if you're a stephen king fan you should probably own the dang thing uh, i bought it on blu-ray recently on amazon for six dollars and it was totally worth the purchase mm-hmm. so uh right. yeah i think it's a seven
0: out of ten for me that's wonderful yes sir so that's uh cat's eye thank you matroid and again that's a great uh, teaser for more to come. So everybody, bone up on your Stephen King movies because we will be talking about them uh, very soon. Right, Dr. Shock?
1: Absolutely, and there's a lot of good ones to talk about.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, Jay of the Dead here. And what we're going to be doing, I'm trying to get better about this. I want our Frankensteinian episodes to have a real variety show feel to them. And instead of like just collecting like listener feedback for... The very end of the show, I think it would be more fun, maybe, to uh, sprinkle it throughout the show in between segments and so forth. So, um, Here is an, uh, an amazing listener feedback email that I received from Vicious Victor from Seattle, Washington. Yes, Victor, sometimes I take the liberty to dub our horror movie podcast listeners with their own horrorized nickname. And I think Vicious Victor is very cool for you. And what you could do is like two Vs almost touching, kind of like the witch, uh, the vich. (laughs) Anyways, just one more note about this before I read this from Victor. Listeners out there, Victor is responding to, in a previous episode when I included that segment of like the first time I was scared by a horror movie, watching The Exorcist. And so Victor writes about his youth and... How horror affected him. And this is some of the the best writing I've ever read That, in, as far as capturing that. And, and in fact, and this is not hyperbole, this is my genuine opinion of this. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974 is my all-time favorite horror film. And I've said a lot about that film. I've heard a lot of other people review it and talk about it and write about it. But um, there's a line in here that Victor writes... It's one of the best things I've ever heard uh, said about that movie. So uh, without further delay, this email comes from Vicious Victor in Seattle. He says, Hi Jay, I'm so glad to hear you're feeling better. I loved your account of stealth watching The Exorcist at your aunt and uncle's place when you were younger. That film remains one of the scariest and scariest sounding ones that I've ever seen. I went through three gateways when I was a kid that set me up for a lifetime of horror movie appreciation. Number one, seeing the image of Saturn devouring his son, a painting by Goya in a family friend's art book. (laughs) Side note, yes, that is terrifying. Uh, Number two, the TV teaser trailer for Suspiria that featured a nursery rhyme and a skull with hair. And three, seeing Jaws in a theater. In junior high and high school, watching horror movies was a way for my friends and I to bond. One of our most intense experiences was Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Okay, here, this is the sentence I was telling you all about. After the first 20 minutes, I no longer trusted the director to only show us things our minds could handle. (laughs) Oh, it's sheer brilliance. Side note from Jay here. Brother, that is exactly how I felt. You captured exactly how I felt during, like, the Grandpa hammer scene. (laughs) Just saying. Anyways, back to Victor. He says, That upsetting thrill, tempered by having friends there for support, forged a powerful link between us. Each horror movie that we saw was a trophy of sorts, something that we had dared to experience that the other kids hadn't. It was empowering to discuss them, too. It felt like we had gained access to a secret language. Listening to each new podcast from you guys reminds me that there are others who know that language, and that's a comforting thought. Thanks for capturing one of the best feelings of the good old days and bringing it into the present and future. Best, Vicious Victor from Seattle. (laughs) Victor, I loved your email. Thank you so much for sending that in. That was fantastic. And I just have a couple more comments, if I may. Um, When you say that, you know, having that thrill, that scare, and then having your friends there for support that forged a powerful link between you, uh, there is actually something about that legitimately in like psychology books. I mean, you can read about this. We actually have, there is a, there is someone I believe who's a doctor of psychology because that person corrected me at some point on Twitter <laughs> when I was talking about classical conditioning and stuff. I misquote, uh, you know, I cited the wrong thing and uh, and uh, forgive me for not knowing the doctor. I'll just call him the Mad Doctor out there. Uh, the Mad Doctor cited from the DSM five or something about <laughs> straightening me out on what sort of conditioning it was. Anyway, that was freaking awesome, but. Anyway, maybe the mad doctor could clear this up, but there is something where if people go through a traumatic experience with others, you know, that they'll um, bond, you know, really bond. And so when you see crazy, silly movies like uh, Speed, for example, Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock, not a horror flick, but when you see something like that and then, you know, they end up falling in love after going through this traumatic experience that seems like a Hollywood thing, but that's actually a real phenomenon. So Vicious Victor, yeah, when I read your email here, I was uh, totally with you because uh, my cousin Brian, um, I had to get him on the show one of these days. He was one of the people who actually got me into horror because he loved horror movies and I was a little more sheepish. And so he was the one always prodding me and trying to get me to watch things. And, you know, he showed me blood. Uh, let's see, what was it? Blood Diner. He loved that movie and you know stuff like that. Anyways, I'm just rambling on at this point, but I just want to thank our good friend Victor for writing in and sending us an email. Everybody else is also welcome to email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. Dave, are you still there? I'm still here, yeah. Okay. Before we let Dave go to bed and enjoy his uh, family and his vacation, did you get a chance to look at those two trailers I was talking about in our agenda? I did. Okay, okay. So let's talk about these real fast, and then we'll let Dave go.
1: A fellow student, Marina Mills committed suicide. There was a video uploaded I urge you not to watch it.
2: I saw the medical report.
4: It is insane. So according to you, Miss Woodson, this video just magically appeared on your timeline. I'm not posting this. Did you try changing your password? Yes, yes, I've tried everything. She's even back in my friends list.
3: You have no idea how crazy that is, to you? That is what code normally looks like. Not this.
0: This isn't code. It's her. Friend Request is a trailer for a horror film that releases on uh, September 22nd. And, mm-hmm. guys... When I saw this, immediately, immediately like as it started, I'm like, oh, here we go. The sequel to Unfriended, which people will remember I despised. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and there's even like, you know, there's a character in this named Laura in the preview. And that was like the dead girl in Unfriended. So I'm like, is this a sequel? I can't see where it is, but it really seems similar But I just wanted to ask you guys, what what did you think about it, Matroid, of Friend Request?
2: I don't even know where to start with this kind of stuff anymore. You know, I'm a huge fan of the idea of of horror movies just existing so we can see them. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I love the idea of taking current, whether it's topical situations or whether it's something that's been more ingrained into uh, social structures like social media, using that in a movie... Fine. Mm -hmm. But when that is the sole premise, when somebody says, hey, I got a movie for you, and he goes to Blumhouse or wherever, and he's like, you know how everybody gets that friend on Twitter they don't know? Well, here's what we're going to (laughs) do. They're going to be a killer. Or whatever, right? Or when they add a supernatural element to it, I just feel like that is such a tired and yet continues to be a phenomenon in Hollywood. And meanwhile, there's some writer out there with a truly brilliant idea, like It Follows or something, Mm -hmm. and they want to make their movie. But instead, we're getting this kind of stuff. So what did I think about it?
0: (laughs) What do you think I thought about it? Not much, but you're singing my song right now because I'm totally with you. I can appreciate making a horror film that deals in the media of our day. But there's something very cheesy about this, like you said, where it is the sole function. It's like the gimmick of the film, whereas it should be peripheral. Now, early, earlier this year, we had Rings, which um, wasn't a great film, but it did use modern technology, not as a gimmick, but in an organic way to help facilitate the evil. And so I got to at least give it credit for that. It was a tiny bit heavy handed at times in that regard, but still... If it's if it's organically associated, like peripherally, with the story unfolding, then I'm fine with it. But what about you, Doctor Shock? What did you say about this trailer?
1: I, I kind of had the same same um, uh, reaction that Matt Matt did. I, I it's we've seen it before, and it doesn't really look as if it's bringing anything new to the table, uh, even with the trailer. And that's usually where you get that's where they got to hook you.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And when you leave the trailer saying, "Yeah, I mean, I've seen." I've seen how many trailers like this before, and so I'm assuming the movie isn't going to have anything new either. And that's just kind of the feeling I left with. It's like, yeah, just another uh, sort of supernatural film. And like you said, it's along the lines of Unfriended. And um, yeah, I wasn't. I can't say. I, I can't say it made me want to say it.
0: Well, you know how there are those movies that come out in Hollywood, like at the same time or around the same time, and they're like the same exact concept, like. Deep Impact and Armageddon, for example. Right. Well, this this looks so identically similar to uh, Unfriended, and it's called Friend Request. Either it's like a very closely related sequel or something, or, you know, it just looks like it's a total ripoff of that film. But um, lastly, the last thing I'll say about this, yes, we haven't seen the movie, so we're just judging on the trailer, but there is a line of dialogue in the trailer Where a character says Quote I thought we were friends Why did you accept My friendship (laughs) And it's like Oh boy Okay so Yeah
2: That's friend request I don't even know Where to start with that
0: I know Painful right So that comes out September 22nd I probably will not Be reviewing that However There was a more Promising trailer Which we saw Which was um, Annabelle Creation
3: This is our new Orphanage it's as big as a
4: castle. Feel free to use the houses you see fit. Mrs. Mullins and I stay down here. Your rooms are upstairs, locked, and it stays that way. Okay.
0: So first of all, Matroid, are you? a fan of the Conjuring movies and by extension the Annabelle spinoff.
2: I like Patrick Wilson.
0: Okay. He's a good actor. Um, I'm
2: pretty unfamiliar with the Conjuring movies outside of the first one, uh, which was surprisingly good. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been told, Mm -hmm. Uh because again, I've not seen it. I've seen none of these and here's why. So this is interesting to me. So, and not to give you guys a long story, that's my problem. I do it a lot. I'm sorry. I'm doing it now. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I, it just i I can't get behind all these movies with such similar premises, such similar posters, such similar trailers. I don't need to see every one of these movies where it's like, Somebody's bending backwards because that's what a demon does when it enters your body. And then, you know, it's the hands are twisted all weird and the eyes get big and the mouth jaw drops open more. And I I just I feel like the formula gets really, really old. However, I've learned recently that The Conjuring kind of breaks that a little bit and becomes a lot more Mm -hmm. um, sympathetic to a true horror fan. So I need to give it a watch. I I heard that the first one is definitely the best one, and then. uh, But I I did watch the trailer for this and thought, okay, I can kind of get behind that. I'm not very afraid of dolls, the movie or the things. (laughs) Right. Um, you know, maybe maybe some movies that have dolls. And and once a china doll scared the crap out of me at my grandmother's house when I woke up at three in the morning and my cousin had put it next (laughs) to me and was whispering. But, um, yeah, I just nothing about this to me screams. Hey, you know what? I want to see that, but. Uh, I'm interested to hear what you guys think, because I, I have a feeling if I see the first movie and like it as much as I anticipate
0: I may, then I'll probably be watching them all. Well, Dave, Dave, Dave can back me on this, I think. First of all, Matroid, as a horror fan and, and everything you were saying, I, once again, you're singing my song. I, I I really feel like you and I are on the same wave, wavelength. I'm sorry if that upsets you. but But like The Conjuring... <laughs> I felt the same way you did in general about like supernatural horror films. It feels like they're doing the same things over and over. But I will say The Conjuring and The Conjuring 2 are special in that they're really well made and they're genuinely scary. Do you agree with that, Dr. Shuck?
1: Yeah, I do agree. I mm-hmm. do agree with like the, the Conjuring films, absolutely. Yeah, And, so, and I have to say, mm-hmm. I, did, I have not seen Annabelle only because I just didn't hear anything really that great about it the first Annabelle. But this seems to be taking the story to a different area, like giving us the origin story mm-hmm. of Annabelle. And I could think that could be, that could be interesting, if, if done well. And is it is I don't know, James Wan directing this, or is he just...
0: He's a producer on this one. He's a
1: producer on this one, okay. Mm-hmm. All right, but it's but it the next story in the Conjuring universe. Right. Um, so, I don't know, and, and it, 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 it's at least piqued my interest.
0: Yeah, well, I will say I think the Annabelle spinoff, well, first of all, for Matroys benefit, like um, where Annabelle comes from in terms of the movies, at least, is it, it's kind of the opening story. You know how in films they show you the main character's competence, or they, they show you an example of our, our lead character. This happens a lot in 80s action cop movies, especially we see them handle a situation. We see that they're competent. We see that they're talented and that they can take care of business, basically. Well, in The Conjuring, Annabelle is just a, this little, like, short story sequence at the beginning of the film to show us, you know, the Warrens, right, and, and their abilities. And so, and it's very effective and very creepy. And so, therefore, from that um, sprung this movie, Annabelle, from uh, 2014. And we reviewed it in episode 32 of Horror Movie Podcast. And I I gave it a 6.5 out of 10. I said, see it in the theater. I called it a rental because it's not something that I would necessarily need to own. But I do think it's worth renting. So, there you have it, Dr. Shock. So, so am, am I excited for this Annabelle prequel, this origin story? Yes, I am. It looks genuinely freaky. And I yeah. think it's going to be good stuff. So You
2: know, it. but... What's with the overuse of orphans in movies, it seems? Are orphans really scary? Well. Like, I, I'm not afraid of orphans. I'm not afraid of orphanages. I, I was never an orphan, so I'm guessing there is a, a very small population out there of moviegoers that says, now, wait a minute, I was in an orphanage, and yes, they are scary. Or, you know, <laughs> because of the, the unfortunate circumstance, and oftentimes surround yeah. uh, an orphan. Uh, they're put at ill at ease perhaps. But again, it's those tropes that for me, it's like, how many times can an orphan be scary? How many times uh, is it frightening that a doll is in the movie? How, you know what I mean? Well, so for me, again, they're, they're reaching these tropes that I, I just can't get behind it.
0: I have a theory for you here. A, a couple aspects on that. Number one, a horror happens to those who deserve it least. And orphans are in that situation where they're vulnerable and um, often less fortunate. And sure think of a child think of a child a child in peril and a child's best advocates are their protectors or their parents and so what you have here is this vulnerable young person with no advocates or no protectors so i think they make great targets in that way well i'm not saying i think they they should be a target but i'm just saying in you know, a horror premise okay. They're a good target for horror happening because they have no one to save them, so to speak. I see.
2: You bring up good points there. I think for me it's it's tough because if I want to evaluate a movie from that standpoint, from a film critic standpoint, it becomes a lot easier to give movies a pass if I can kind of uh, dissect what the director or storyteller is trying to, to show. Mm-hmm. If I want to enjoy a movie, I'm going to say, that's not what the person would do in that situation, right? Mm -hmm. And it can be very hard to separate ourselves from that. That's why I didn't like the movie Life very much, Mm -hmm. um, which is definitely a horror, definitely uh, sci-fi. They they did everything that they shouldn't do because it's either been done before or because that's not what people would really do in those circumstances, and that doesn't get a pass for me. And, you know, Haunted House in Space, where have I seen that before? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's right. Alien um and. i just i regardless of how how well intentioned something may be and i think you're right horror happens to those who deserve at least which makes it even less settling right yeah but uh i, I it's just the orphan thing has got to go man i'm tired of it
0: i see they've used it a lot that's for sure so that's annabelle creation let us know what you think of those trailers in the show notes here for episode 120 we'd love to hear from you but uh dave Thanks for taking out time from your vacation.
1: No problem. Have a good uh, rest of the
3: show.
0: All right, and at this point in episode 120 of Horror Movie Podcast, let's move into my feature review of 12 Feet Deep Trapped Sisters. Don't know, I'm glad you came. It's been too
4: long. Yeah sophomore year, we used to bet who could race around the pool the fastest. Loser buys dinner. Yeah, I'm at minus five in the bank, so you're getting dinner either way.
1: The public pool is now closed. Have a pleasant weekend.
0: A lot of places will list this film as 12 Feet Deep. It is also known as its original title, which was The Deep End. But it is officially 12 Feet Deep Trapped Sisters, just so everybody knows, because that is what's on the title card at the beginning of the film. This was directed and written by Matt Eskandari and co-written by Michael Holtquist. It has Tobin Bell of Saw fame, though He was just cast to have a known quantity in the billing. His role in this film is actually very minimal, so you're not seeing this film in order to see Tobin Bell by any means. You could really call it a bit part, actually. It does star Nora Jane Noon, who was in The Descent, one of the greatest horror movies of all time. It's in my top three. And also Alexandra Park. It also stars Diane Farr, who is the best performer in the film. So, twelve feet deep, Trap Sisters is a 2017 film that was just released the other day. Actually, on June 19th on VOD, you can stream it right now for six bucks on Amazon, and it is one of the very few Thanksgiving horror films. Though you barely even know it, because there's only one passing reference to the fact that it's Thanksgiving. And honestly, um, if you're gonna, <laughs> if you want to watch something. Creepy or Unsettling at Thanksgiving Time. This probably isn't the one I would pick. Um, I would pick The Last Descent, which is not a horror film whatsoever. But I've been telling people you should still see that because it is based on the true story of this dude who gets stuck upside down in a cave here in Utah, not far from where we live, actually. And uh, it was on Thanksgiving. You know, right, right around the Thanksgiving time. And so anyway, that's the last descent from 2016, but I digress. So this is a survival horror perishable situation type of film where its protagonists are stuck in a dangerous situation, where the longer they're stuck there, the deadlier it becomes. And though I would consider this a very mild horror film, I think most people would tend to classify this as a thriller. Or maybe even a drama, but by my standards, you know, uh, Jay of the Dead's tNA rating, if you remember the the previous classification tone and assignment, that's what TNA stands for. <laughs> and by the way, if you haven't heard that episode yet, that's horror movie podcast episode 81 where I go into tone and assignment of genre um, where we try to I try to classify actually specifics about what type of horror film you're looking at there. In any ways, this would be more under the primal type of horror, which is, um, you know, it can be very subtle and very slight as it is in this film here. I'm just saying, I want you to have the proper expectations. Supposedly, this story is inspired by true events, but actually the film is built exactly like Adam Green's Frozen, except instead of taking place on a ski lift... It takes place at an indoor Olympic-sized swimming pool, okay? So the premise is, no spoilers, Nora Jane Noon and Alexandra Park play two sisters who get trapped beneath the fiberglass cover of an indoor swimming pool while it is closed over Thanksgiving break. Now, much like Frozen, the first thing you've got to assess when you're looking at a film like this is, does the premise work? You know, in order for them to get stuck up on the ski lift in Frozen, or in order for these girls to get stuck beneath the uh, pool cover. (laughs) Like, is this a credible thing? Now, in Frozen, um, you know, honestly, you have to kind of suspend your disbelief because the way that happens is a little bit ridiculous. As much as I love Frozen, and believe me, I love Frozen, Um, this film actually does it a little bit better. There's still some aspects to it that are a tiny bit of a stretch, but honestly, overall, I think it's pretty well executed. The way they get stuck in this ridiculous situation, you know, I think you can believe it. Um, it's kind of dumb, but not quite as dumb as, you know, the way they get stuck in Frozen, right? So, um, and and the other thing is that impressed me is this happens. I mean, they get locked in the pool within the first 10 minutes. So it only takes 10 minutes for it to get going. Side note on this, and I always appreciate this about films. These are little details that, you know, a very careful writer will put in that most people will overlook. But the name of the pool, you know, this facility is the Katia Aquatic Center or the Katia Public Pool. And I actually looked up that word uh, just to see where this was supposed to be set, you know, which city or state, and I'm like, hey, is there a city called Katia? Well, if you look that up, of course, you'll find that the Katia were the monsters of the sea in Greek mythology, so that's pretty cool, especially since it runs in line with the themes of this film, because there actually are, uh, um, I'll just say it this way, Um, there are some monsters in this film, so to speak, Uh, not actual, you know... (laughs) Monsters in the classic sense, but um, we'll say monstrous people um, of sorts. Uh, Another thing that you should know about this film. I mean, when I first, you know, was actually I got really excited about this when I discovered this movie, and I I've been looking forward to seeing it, and um, I was pretty pumped up about it to be honest with you. But you know, one of the things you ask is, okay, are they actually stuck where they have to? tread water the entire time because it's called 12 feet deep. So are they, you know, stuck in the deep end of the pool? And the answer to that, I'll just tell you right now is no. They actually have access to the entire pool so they can go down to where it's as low as three and a half feet. Just saying. I just want you to know that it's not like they have to tread water the whole time. Besides, you know, they could hang on to the side or whatever. But because this is happening over a Thanksgiving break. And, you know, obviously they don't have food and well, they do have water in the pool. And I just wondered, okay, how much, how much pool water could you drink with chlorine in it and not have adverse effects or, you know, throw up or get dehydrated. But then there's also the question of temperature and I'm not giving away any spoilers here. I'm just telling you the things that you can think about with this film. You know, it's a heated pool, of course, but will they heat the pool over the break? Now, they do include a ticking clock of sorts in case those things aren't motivating enough for you because one of the girls is a diabetic and she needs her shot, she needs food, or she's going to be in serious trouble. So, that gives you the screenwriter's ticking clock angle. And this here is not a spoiler. This is given in the premise. Um, There is a third person that does get involved, the janitorial staff. This lady's a custodian. And as I said, she is the best performer in the film. And uh, she's involved somewhat in this. Now, I think I read on Twitter, uh, it may have been Sal Roma or Jody Horror Guy or One Sick Puppy. I'm sorry I don't have it here in front of me, but they felt that this third person's involvement in the film kind of took away or undercut the survival horror aspects. And to be honest with you, I was worried about that too and kind of frustrated because I I thought it was going to be a problem. But honestly, I can tell you happily, I'm happy to report that this is still a true survival horror type of scenario rather than some sort of foul play scenario. And honestly, it would have been a disastrously boring film without that custodian because there are not a lot of troubleshooting things you can do in a pool when they're stuck below that you know hard fiberglass cover I mean there's just you know they can pound on it with their fists and that's about it so I mean this thing would have gotten super boring without that third character so I actually think the way that character is used it works it helps the film and the character is um, for the most part pretty credible actually And speaking of characters, I mean, of course, these sisters are somewhat estranged. They don't get along great. They don't have a super great history. One is strong and determined and so forth, you know, and the other one is a loose cannon. She's a recovering drug addict, of course. Um, That one's name is Jonah, or at least it's pronounced Jonah. And of course, that makes you think of Jonah and the whale, so... There are lots of parallels to the Jonah and the Great Fish story from the Bible, and you can actually uh, run away with that theme if you think about it for very long. I'm not going to go into it here because of spoilers, but I have to compliment the screenwriters, Matt Eskindari and Michael Holtquist, for uh, the extent to which it does riff on the story of Jonah and the whale. I mean, I think that's interesting. Anyways, the rating for this film, I couldn't initially find an official MPAA rating, you know, and I I would say it was probably about a PG-13. I believe there are only two F-words in the film <laughs> as far as that goes, and, you know, there's some, some other things, but, I, you know, you can't show this to tiny kids or anything, but I think PG-13 rating is fine for this in case you're curious about that. Uh, This film does have what I call satellite stories. A satellite story is kind of like a backstory to give you additional information or insight into your characters. And so they try to have this satellite story in this film that has the same weight and impact as that incredible satellite story in Gremlins, the one about Santa Claus. Uh, But it doesn't quite have that same impact, but it still informs the characters. As I said it's a pretty subtle and slight horror film it's not overly hardcore and it is more of a thriller slash drama as well. Now it reminds me a lot of a couple other things in addition to Frozen it reminded me of that hot sauna movie called uh, 247 degrees Fahrenheit from 2011. I was actually really excited about that movie and um, I still kind of like it despite myself it doesn't work super great, but, you know, you get these people who are trapped inside of this sauna and the temperature goes way up. <laughs> but honestly, the very best kind of uh, perishing situation, uh, well, I mean, there are some others that I love, but but the one where, like, people are kind of stuck in a dumb situation would be Open Water 2, Adrift from 2006. Now, that is a fantastic film. And I'll tell you right now, that is very close to my uh top 10 horror of all time. It's not in my top 10, but the more I think about that film, the more I love it and the more I'm tempted to kick something out of my top 10 just to get it in there. Side note, you know, for all of the shark, you know, action that's going on in the summer and with Shark Week coming up and so forth. Um they actually had the open water movies and a bunch of shark movies. Um, on sale at Walmart so you can actually find Open Water 2 Adrift at Walmart for like I don't know five bucks for the DVD something very inexpensive and reasonable um, a side note though I mean don't buy Open Water 2 Adrift looking for a shark movie let me just put it out there I mean this is a survival horror movie and it's much in the same vein of the other films I've been discussing but If you want to hear more about Open Water 2, uh, Horror Metropolis Episode 7, our Man-Eating Animals episode, Uh, Kyle Bishop, Dr. Walking Dead, and I review Open Water 2 Adrift in that, and honestly, it's one of my all-time favorite movie reviews that I've ever recorded on a podcast, so I hope you will check that out. Finally, before I get to my rating, I'm going to conclude this review with a listener email from Graham who wrote in about this movie here, 12 Feet Deep, Trap Sisters. Graham writes, Hey guys, it's Graham the Haunted Marshmallow here, despite the alter ego my email address seems to suggest. (laughs) This evening I watched an indie movie that was just released today called 12 Feet Deep. This movie has been on my radar since I watched the trailer a month ago and saw that the movie was about two girls getting stuck under the pool cover of an Olympic-sized pool where they are left for the holiday weekend. Some might even say that this movie will do for swimming pools what Frozen did for ski lifts. That is, if Frozen actually did anything for ski lifts. Easy Graham. Easy Graham. No, I'm just kidding. So (laughs) he continues, In all honesty, I would compare the way this movie handles its premise to Landmine Goes Click. I love that one. Rather than something like Frozen or The Shallows, I know you love the extremes that Landmine Goes Click goes to, Jay, but I found 12 Feet Deep to be more relatable in regards to character motivation and development. And as much as I enjoyed Landmine Goes Click, some of the actions the characters make seem exaggerated for the sake of escalating the narrative. And while this film threatens to do the same at times, by the end I found myself buying into all the characters as if they were real people. I think that's a good point, Graham. Anyway, I just wanted to point this out to you guys in case you haven't heard of it. It's available to rent on iTunes, Amazon, and Vudu. And it's a 7 out of 10 for me. Definitely a good alternative to 47 meters down, at least. (laughs) Ain't that the truth, Graham? And he says, cheers, Graham. So thank you for sending in that email and making sure that we were um, aware of this movie, Graham. This is exactly the kind of uh, film that I look for. And I have to tell you, listeners, I agree 100% with Graham. 12 Feet Deep, Trapped Sisters is a 7 out of 10. I would call it a rental. And just keep in mind, I mean, this is in the same vein. It's along the lines of Frozen. It's going to be a a pretty mild, pretty subtle type of horror. It's more of a thriller drama for most people. But honest, I had a great time watching it. And I think you will too, especially if you love survival horror. (sighs)
3: Horror.
0: Okay, now as we move into some listener feedback from our Horror Pets episode, that's episode 119, we got a couple of emails to help us out. So here's a quick story. So after recording that previous episode of Horror Pets, I remembered why Wolfman Josh and I thought that Monkey Shines was a Stephen King-related work. So when I posted the episode, I don't know if you saw the comments, but I put this side-by-side comparison of the Monkey Shines cover art and Stephen King's book, Skeleton Crew, in that cover. And so they both have the deranged-looking monkey with the little symbols on the front. And I'm always thankful for the the safety net below us when we're doing these high-wire acts of podcasting because you know the HMP community can be trusted to help us out with such things because we actually get a couple of emails to... um, you know, give us that info in case we hadn't uh, figured it out on our own. So Sharon wrote, and she said, the Stephen King monkey reference you want is the hardback cover of Skeleton Crew. You may get me to watch Cujo. It's one of the best King books I've ever read, but I've never wanted to revisit the deterioration of the poor dog. You are in his thoughts in the book. And worse, the book's ending once Cujo is finally dispatched. Very powerful and will never leave me. I'm a mom after all. Sounds like they changed it, but I'm still reluctant. Thanks again for a great episode, Sharon. Thank you, Sharon. And thanks for making sure that we knew that reference of uh, Skeleton Crew. And a side note, I think I, I may have said this before, but one time Stephen King was asked if he had any regrets about any of his books or anything that he would have changed. I believe they asked him about his regrets specifically. And he says that he would have changed the ending of Cujo, he did not like uh, the, where that went, and I won't go into it here, in case you haven't read the book Cujo and you want to. But um, you know that the way that ending goes down is, in fact, uh, different in the film version, as we've said, and I think that's common knowledge. And so I'm careful about spoilers, but I'm just saying I'm putting it out there, Sharon. So I think you should watch the movie, and even though you see The dog's deterioration, which they do an excellent job with that makeup. It's very disgusting and pitiful, uh, (laughs) but you don't really get that sense of it from the dog's perspective. So it's really interesting. And then we also got another email kind of setting us straight here. This comes from one of my favorite HMP listeners who is extremely supportive of us, sends sends me lots of great emails both to uh, this show and to Movie Podcast Weekly. And this comes from Brian Bashi. Now, I added that last name because that's a monster name. And um, a Bashi is this elephant eating snake creature. I love that it's a snake that eats elephants. According to Wikipedia, it's a python like Chinese mythological giant snake that ate elephants. So there you go, Brian. I hope you dig that horrorized nickname, Brian Bashi. So, anyway, <laughs> Brian writes. <laughs> How are you, Jay? Thanks for the episode. It was fun. Referring to uh, horror pets. Uh, Maybe one of the reasons why you associate Stephen King with Monkey Shines is because his book Skeleton Crew has one of those wind-up monkey dolls with symbols on the cover. At least, I know that's why some people confuse the two. Have you seen the film Wild Beasts? It's a 1984 Italian horror film about nature gone amuck. I first discovered it last year. It's not a great movie, but it is very entertaining and quite crazy. There are some insane scenes with real zoo animals that I can't believe they got away with. (laughs) Cheesy fun, if you know what you're getting into. So, uh, real quick, no, Brian, I have not seen Wild Beasts, but I love that description. You had me when you said, Insane scenes with real zoo animals that you can't believe they got away with. <laughs> so I want to see that. Listeners, if you've seen Wild Beast from 1984, the Italian horror flick, let us know in the show notes for this episode. Continuing on, um, Brian mentions a uh, poster that he did not receive, <laughs> which does not surprise me one bit because I suck at sending out prizes, especially posters. Just ask my friend Jody, horror guy. Um, who's going to kill me if I don't find a damn poster mailer. So, but anyways, so Jody's going to get his poster and Brian, you're going to get your poster too. So I need to either, if you don't mind, email me and tell me what the poster was, or I'll go back and try to find it in the, uh, top 10 show of 2016. Apparently that's when he won that poster. And, I just I suck at t-shirts and I suck at sending out prizes. I'm very sorry about that and I'm promise you all I'm trying to get better. That's like one of my New Year's resolutions for 2017. So, the year's half over, but I'll get I'll get better at it. Anyways, as Brian continues down through his email, he says a lot of very nice and gracious things about us uh despite our failing at mailing poster prizes, but Um, I'm not going to read those here because it would sound self-serving, but I'll just kind of read this uh, final part. He says, dozens of podcasts have come and gone in the last several years, but HMP has been a constant. You were the first movie-related show I checked out, and you still sit atop my list. Thank you, Brian. Lastly, quite the tease for me with the future Stephen King episode Fair warning, I may have a lot to say, King is probably the number one person in the world that I admire most in my life. By the way, Brian, side note for you, just to tease it a little bit further, it's actually going to be two Stephen King episodes, hardcore, and that was kind of like, you know, we did a little bit with uh, Cat's Eye, that was just a a tiny little sample taste, Cat's Eye size taste of what's coming here uh, very soon. So everybody, seriously, HMP community, start watching the Stephen King movies because I'm just saying, I'm going to be doing some great discussion of that stuff. Anyways, uh, to, to wrap up here, his email, Brian writes, when I was 12 years old, my mother let me check out It at the library. It was my introduction to Stephen King in written form. And to this day, I've read several hundred novels, at least and it remains my favorite book of all time, not only because it's awesome, but also because of how happy and wondrous it made me feel. More importantly, it may have been the launching pad for my obsession with the genre as a whole. Even before I knew you had a Stephen King episode planned, I knew this would come up, since there is a certain movie coming out this year based on a certain book. (laughs) I'm very nervous, and of course I refuse to watch a trailer for it. I'm hearing people get a getting excited after seeing the trailer and I'm not sure I even want to know that I won't get into it now but I hated the TV miniseries it broke my heart just the fact that it was on network television bummed me out now it gets to be a hard R I think, I hope like it should be and I'm still worried they're going to make a piece of crap hell, I don't even know if it's rated yet and if it ends up being PG-13 I'm going to cry, says Brian Banshee so Brian, thank you as always, for your emails or for your feedback, thank you very much for writing. At this point in episode 120 of Horror Movie Podcast, I'm still joined by my friend Matroid of the Sci Fi Podcast. And we wanted to talk to you a little bit about The Mummy from 2017. Now, we have not actually had an opportunity to give our perspective on The Mummy on Horror Movie Podcast, although I hope that you will all check out Universal Monsters Cast, our sister show, which is part of Movie Podcast Network. That is their specialty, <laughs> where they have this tremendous insight and research. I mean, those guys do so much work for that show. That's hosted by Joel Robertson, our very own Wolfman Josh, and Dr. Shock. They have a lot of guests on there and stuff. And I actually very much enjoyed their in-depth review of The Mummy from 2017. Have you had a chance to listen to that yet, Matroid? It's actually
2: next on my list to listen to tomorrow.
0: Okay, yeah, it's going to be a blast. I think you'll have a good time. I had so much fun listening to that. And I don't always get... Because I'm usually editing podcasts like this one right here, Like, I don't get a lot of time to listen to other shows. And that makes me sad. But I'm like, I'm definitely going to hear this Mummy review. So Universal Monsters Cast, it'll be linked in the show notes. And if you want to hear super in-depth stuff. But for now, this will just be a mini review. And I kind of, I, there are some things I want to ask Matt Troy about this film. So, you've probably heard, you know, a lot of the buzz and the negative talk. I mean, earlier in this show, we referred to Bill Shetty, who's a horror critic. On Twitter, I saw he tweeted, The Mummy is a horrendous attempt at modernizing the 80-year-old classic. Universal, stop now. Horror fans will buy the classics. Avoid Two out of ten. Now that's from Bill Shetty, who's a pretty hardcore horror fan. So that was his take on it. And then, like, um, one of my favorite podcasts is the Slash Film Cast, Matroid. You've you've probably, I'm sure you've heard them, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So what? And when they reviewed it, they were pretty. They fell into that camp of critics who were being pretty harsh on the Mummy. And um, they're one of their hosts, Devendra Hardwar, I, I love these guys, so everybody understands I'm not smack talking. But Devendra, I was surprised he had so much contempt in his review. And he's usually a guy who likes horror or horror-related stuff. And I sensed from his review that he was just being spiteful and um, a little bit dismissive maybe, and maybe hateful. And again, he doesn't listen to the show. He doesn't care what I think. You know, he's, but I'm just I'm just putting it out there. There were people who were aggressively harsh on this, and so what I'm asking, Matroid, what I really like to pose is how much disdain or displeasure can we reasonably express um, when you don't like something? I mean, as as a film critic, because I know that Matroid, you you are a a man about town, so to speak you write for publications, uh, you have press credentials. And so as a professional critic, and like, what do you think is reasonable in expressing your displeasure of something?
2: I would like to show you this can of worms that you've just opened. <laughs> How does it look? <laughs> um, <laughs> this is tough for me. I believe <laughs> I believe journalistic integrity is, is all but gone, right? Uh, there's new formats like Medium out there and there's uh, the old tried and true Metacritic and, and uh, fried green tomatoes, whatever it is, um, <laughs> rotten tomatoes, as it were. I think these, there are a number of attempts out there to get the everyday person into uh, providing a journalistic view or report on something like a movie or an event of some kind. And frankly, I think that's watered down any kind of responsibility that may have one time existed for somebody to say, uh, although I did not like this movie, here's some merit uh, or some reason why it's okay, or here, here's here's an acknowledgement, right? And then you get the scathing reviews in Hollywood Reporter, or you get the scathing reviews in Rolling Stone, that, and some of these guys that are kind of known for it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, our our buddy Rex, right, at, at times has been <laughs> Rex Reed, um, known to give <laughs> yes known to give kind of a a beyond scathing review of things. So so, and even the the premier critics that we all think about, which would be Siskel and Ebert during their day, um, gave Ebert especially gave some very harsh critiques uh, from a film maker himself, even a a writer and and someone who probably knows the business or knew the business rather uh, greater than just about anybody else. That said, which was a long way to get to what I'm about to say, I'm kind of a dick when it comes to stuff. And I'm going to tell it how it is for the most part. Mm -hmm. That's partially just because of who I am. Um, I married someone who's even more that way. So Station will really, if you want to hear her opinion, just listen to our communion episode. It was the uh, part two of our alien abduction series that we did with you guys. It hurts my heart. Uh, she (laughs) She will let you know exactly what she thinks. I love that movie. And she gave it a zero. And she will tell you why. And I had to omit several swears so that we can keep our show family friendly. Um, I, I think that, I think that it's, it's incredibly difficult because what we're trying to do on podcasts like this is, is inform people mm-hmm. and give them a reason to make a decision for themselves or get them excited potentially about something. And that becomes problematic when we are trying to review something that maybe isn't so great. When we reviewed Jupiter Ascending uh, on our show, <laughs> I informed people that this was a show they probably should not go watch. Yeah, Not because I don't want to support Hollywood, not because of this or that, but because legitimately I didn't feel like there was enough there, enough anima to make this thing worth watching.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Whereas Chappie, which was widely um, derailed and, and, and considered terrible. By by critics, so, I, mean, I don't remember what the Rotten Tomatoes score is or the Metacritic score, but no one liked Chappie. I thought it was great. Really? So I informed people as to why I thought it was great, what I thought was cool about it, why I thought it was actually better than what people were saying, okay. and I think that there's an obligation for us to to simply be honest. So mm-hmm. Bill Chet or Bill Shetty, who I, I really like, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I've I've listened to him many times. Um, he has every right to be that. Uh, critical of a movie. Yes. However, Josh nailed it on the end. I haven't listened, but I read some of the show notes. You got to see this movie just to support the dark universe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Liz and I station and I, we own the, the Blu-ray set of all the, the classics. She picked that up. Not that long ago. It's awesome. We watch those. It's fantastic. It's a great way to do it. Uh, but I'm, I'm game for new stuff. And, and I think that uh, it's okay to be harsh. It's okay to be honest, but I think it, there's a difference between doing that. And then, doing that in a way that is more about, uh, the name of the person getting credit. So, um, if Bill Shetty was doing this because he wanted people to know that Bill Shetty can be a, like kind of a jerk and, and be kind of, uh, <laughs> sharp tongue, but that's one thing. Mm. But if he has a legitimate critique on a movie, then I feel like it's important that he does that. And
0: that's, that's how I feel. And that's what I plan to do on this movie as well. I'm with you, brother. I, I like what you said there except except everything i like that you said except for the chappy part but no i'm just kidding i'm just messing <laughs> it's, um, it's it's that's
2: crazy i can't believe people didn't like that movie i know but, well that's that's maybe I, i'm
0: wrong that's how i feel when i hear people griping about avatar and i know you guys you sci-fi people I hate it i hate it I I, hate that movie. I know. And like, I hate Chappie, but we still love each other. So that's fine. (laughs) But here's what I'm here to tell the horror community. And and I'll try to back this up as best I can. Um, We don't have to be jerks or anything, right? Because there are people associated with uh, (laughs) filmmaking in Hollywood. I mean, there are people for whom writing screenplays is part of their, you know, their, their income and so forth. I mean, we have very close friends, in fact, who are, filmmakers and they know what the business is like and I know like big big Hollywood is different from indie Hollywood in some ways but I just want to tell the horror community something from Jay of the Dead this is one of my Jay of the Dead proclamations that becomes infamous and gets me a lot of hate mail but I just want to say it's okay to not like the mummy you're not a turncoat to the genre if you were displeased if you were disappointed if you were let down you're not letting down the genre. What I think we've seen here, Metroid, is a little bit of the Phantom Menace syndrome, where if you remember back in 1999, it feels like everybody in my crew of friends, at least, and, and I've heard other people say this. We've talked about this phenomenon. We went to see Phantom uh, Phantom Menace. We were so pumped up because it was the first Star Wars movie in so long, and we actually got to see it in the theater, brand new, blah, 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 blah. And then we walked out and everybody was like, yeah, that was, that was awesome. You know, Darth Maul, right? You know, double, double-sided lightsaber and all that stuff. But then, you know, slowly over time, we came to terms with the fact that we were actually let down. And I think fans are often apologetic and maybe even a little defensive. And I think that that is a self-defense mechanism for coping with the disappointment of hoping for more and getting less, and I think that's what happened here with The Mummy, I was worried all along, upon seeing the trailers, and I was like, oh, that looks awfully artificial, I mean, it looks like a big, dumb, action, Hollywood, blah, 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 and you know, I even went to the theater, Metroid, open-minded and ready to enjoy it as a big action flick. It's like, fine, I would have liked to have seen a small story, but, you know, this isn't about what I would like. It's like, you know, remove review the movie that's in front of you, not not the movie that you wish they had made. And that's what I did. And even so, um, I found it disappointing. And tell me if you can tell me the truth, Matt Troy. We're friends. We go way back. Tell me if you think this is harsh. This is my tweet. Right after seeing the movie, I walked out of the movie, I put this on Horror Movie Podcast Twitter feed. The Mummy for 12-year-olds, a Redbox-caliber horror movie, atrocious story, screenplay, has scares and some creep factor 4.5 out of 10. What do you think of that? Is that mean? Is that too mean? I think it's
2: totally fair if, in fact, that is how you feel about it.
0: Oh, yeah. It, It is, in fact, how I feel about it. Um... Yeah, I mean, I I felt like, yeah, if I'm 12 years old, I'm going to love this movie. That's going to be a blast for a 12-year-old. But honestly, and people know this who've listened to this show for a long time, I went through this, this phase where I was renting all of the horror movies in Redbox, right? Those ones that went straight to video and they ended up at Redbox. And man, it was killing, not killing, but it was really hindering my love for horror because I was subjecting myself to these movies, which were like... You know, four point fives and below, a lot of them, and it reminded me of that red box caliber kind of movie, and and I I think the story was really problematic and the screenplay and stuff. But anyway, what what did you think of the Mummy? And and we'll come back to this in a minute. But I'm really anxious to hear your thoughts. Well,
2: it's tough. Okay, so I I went and saw this with Station just a few nights ago, actually, um, and and I have an unapologetic love for tom cruise mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i've got my reasons um <laughs> we all do I, I i i don't care that he is uh, a scientologist i don't care that he is um like running all the time in his movies i don't care that he is is probably the biggest action or just movie star alive with maybe the exception of someone like tom hanks Mm-hmm um you know as far as like currently working regularly um i don't really care about those things i love tom cruise i'll watch him in anything honestly i just think he's great um i i i hated with a fiery passion the brendan fraser mummy really uh it was when Brent, when brendan fraser yelled back at the mummy i thought this is my time to leave the theater
0: yeah that is a low I point i finished
2: it but but not only that i just feel like and Part of it is because I think it was the wrong vessel for Brendan Fraser, who I I miss as an actor. I thought he had tons of of potential, uh, but he was given a lot of poor direction too many times, I feel. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that movie suffered tremendously. And and I think that this movie struggled in that um, it had an identity crisis quite badly. Was it supposed to be as funny as they were trying to be? Because I didn't laugh I don't think once Mm -hmm. Um, right up to the point where the the stinger when the when the inevitable happens at the end of the movie, we get a a really badly delivered line from Tom Cruise. And I'm and I at that point think you've just done something to alienate who this movie is really for. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the problem is and this is what happens when you take a beloved franchise or a beloved property like Star Wars. And and give it to people that don't own it already, if that makes sense. Yeah. If you're making this movie for Space Wolf or Wolfman, right? Mm-hmm. If you're making this movie for Bill Shetty, if you're making this movie for Gregor Mortis, if you're making this movie for Dr. Shock or for you or for me or for any number of us, Station for sure, who love the Universal movies, mm-hmm. you're not making this movie the same way you made it. But what they are hoping to do very clearly when they hired Alex Kurtzman <laughs> was to make a movie that would reach the lowest common denominator and hopefully not offend the true fan. This happened with Star Trek. All these people love the new Star Trek movies. But what they fail to see is that these are not Star Trek movies. They are action flicks. They are vengeance stories. Um, the re- the Wrath of Khan pretend Wrath of Khan into darkness <laughs> is so bad on so many levels. People loved what they saw until they realized, wait, this isn't actually a Star Trek movie.
0: Well, real quick, just to um, clarify so, something you said, forgive me. When you said the lowest common denominator, I just, I, I think I know what you meant and I just want to make sure that the listeners know too. When you say the lowest common denominator, do you mean you're trying to, they were trying to appeal to a wide vast Audience, not necessarily to morons, but you're saying people who weren't necessarily horror fans or mummy fans. You mean just across the board? Is that what you meant, or not? Maybe morons. I was, oh, you no, meant get, you meant freaking morons. No, okay,
2: <laughs> I'm sorry. No, you're you're right. I think I do feel like they are they are trying to get. A, they're cutting a broad swath, right? They, uh, okay. They want they want everyone to like this movie, which is why it's not a horror movie. This mm-hmm. movie was not a horror movie. It was an action piece right? Mm, I see. This movie is not an action movie. <laughs> this movie was a comedy. It's to me, this movie had such an identity crisis so right up funny. to where you're casting Jake Johnson from new girl who plays Nick from new girl in the movie mm-hmm. outside. I think of maybe safety, not guaranteed. He's played. He's a one note character mm-hmm. and it's played. It's to me, it's, it's not enjoyable. So I didn't this to be a horror movie anymore. I mean, less even so than
0: frighteners, right? Which I think is, loosely a horror movie see um well i mean if you're doing genre genre classification for and i'm sorry to interrupt you like for me it was action first horror second comedy third but i mean it was diminishing by far with each additional step but go ahead that was just my take
2: no no you're not wrong but i think the, the point to that is that um they are not trying to reach fans of the mummy or fans of the universal movies or fans of horror They are trying to reach my sister, who thinks Tom Cruise is still sexy. Mm -hmm. They are trying to reach my parents, who are 80 years old and have just started going to movies. It's so weird. Matt, (laughs) did you see La La Land? Dad, sounds weird coming out of your mouth, buddy. (laughs) Matt, have you heard of ABBA? Yes, Dad, I've heard of ABBA. Um, But, you know, they're trying to make everyone from my daughter, who's 13, to my parents, who are 80, enjoy this movie. And that is the wrong approach to a universal monsters movie Mm -hmm. i know why they're doing it that way because the almighty dollar certainly rules when it comes time to you don't hire tom cruise to be in a small movie you don't hire these kind of people you don't you don't make uh russell Crowe, dr jekyll and mr hyde
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, i don't know if that's a spoiler if it is you can cut it no it's i think people know people know that you don't
2: make okay that's what i thought but you don't make that character that character because you're doing an intimate piece, right? If you watch the original movies, if you love them, you feel a sense of ownership over them, even though they're older than any of us by far. You know, you watch that first Dracula movie and you think, Bella Lugosi was looking at me, right? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> these, these sets are so beautiful. And they are, and the original Mummy is a perfect example of a movie that, was not for everybody now back then movies were were in uh short supply comparatively but now in order to make a movie viable from a financial standpoint they have to make it big if they make a movie big what do they have to sacrifice they have to sacrifice things that are going to make somebody who's traditionally a horror fan love this movie i found the problems not to be broad swath i i found the problem to be um
0: the lack of identity I, right? I, I love you where still make a
2: horror movie and it reaches everyone
0: <laughs> I love where you're going with this and I totally agree with you I um you're you're uh the ship is going out to sea already and I'm I got one more thing <laughs> I got one more thing back at the harbor <laughs> and then I'm going with you on this trip I mean we're gonna sail set sail here but real quick uh speaking of Star Wars because you brought that a minute ago I am a Star Wars fan now I get grief all the time from quote unquote, bigger Star Wars fans, ostensibly, who insist that I'm too critical of the new Star Wars movies. Everybody says it. I get it a lot. But with Star Wars and with horror, my thing is, if we love these films, if we love the horror genre, then we need to expect it better and at least hold it up to a certain standard. Now, who am I, Matt? Like, like, I mean, people are like, "Chay of the Dead... Who do you think you are? Well, I'm nobody. I'm just a fan, but that's good enough is what I'm saying. Who else are these movies for if not for the fans? Now, what you just said is they didn't make it for the fans necessarily. I mean, they wanted to hook us in, but they wanted to lift this broad spectrum of people, and I agree with that. But to me, it's a little heartbreaking because it's like, why aren't we, the fans, making sure... And I don't know how we would do this, but why aren't we making sure that they're delivering a product to the fan community that we will love? Now, Matt, I know it's more complicated than what I'm saying there at first, but tell me this. So we've talked about Alien before, the Alien movies, and you, you've you even made fun of me for loving Alien Resurrection as I do. Your Your, wife and, wrong. I, your wife and I love it, like Station loves it and I love it. But the thing is, I think that the horror community, my two cents, I think that we should treat this movie, The Mummy, the same way that everybody seems to treat Alien Resurrection, you know, because it's pretty unloved. But I always tell people, hey, if this science fiction horror film were not part of this franchise Alien, which is classic and excellent you know, then we would probably kind of enjoy it if it weren't like lumped in there. And so, you know, I totally get, and, and the next tweet I sent out that, that night was, there's no shame in seeing The Mummy, which was a 4.5, <laughs> if you want to support big budget <laughs> horror, because I think that's great to support big, big budget horror. I don't mind that. But um, I'm just saying that we don't have to be, ashamed of being disappointed you can say that you didn't love the mummy i mean i i've seen on twitter i've heard the community have a lot of like well i mean yeah it it wasn't you know it was pretty good i mean like yeah we'll take it and it's like no i don't think we should (laughs) like but but i admire i gotta say this real quick before it's misconstrued i admire the universal monsters cast our friend over there joel josh and dave because the whole episode, you'll hear this when you listen, they, they wrestle, you can hear them wrestling with this because they want to they approach it, and I'm not going to spoil it if people haven't heard it yet, but they really want to approach it in a fair way and not like fanboys, but they also don't want to be jerky, snobby critics, and you can hear them wrestling with their feelings the whole time. And I actually think the way they approach it in that review is the correct way to do it. And I think that's how people should approach it. But I'm just saying Matt, I don't think that we should just take it just because it's like, well, they made us a horror film. We should just be grateful and shut up. What say you, sir?
2: You're not wrong uh, (laughs) to me, right? So I think that there's two elements of that, right? So people that are huge fans of music, for example, um, they love music. Their job is going to be to love what they love. And that is it musicians will simultaneously love something and hate it based on what only a musician can meet for criteria. So uh, a perfect would be um, I love Led Zeppelin. OK, well, Led Zeppelin's my favorite band of all time. As a musician, I recognize why they may not be somebody's favorite band, but I choose to ignore that. Mm-hmm. I'm a massive Star Wars fan. I have one, two, three, at least three Star Wars tattoos, maybe four. I can't remember. Um, I love star Wars. I've got tons of memorabilia. I've got the station gifted me early on in our relationship, which is how I knew for sure she was the one Mm -hmm. with a a poster signed by the entire cast and George Lucas. And it's in museum glass, like under museum glass. Um, (laughs) what a woman, what a woman. She's amazing. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the point is, is that I'm a massive star Wars fan. I do not give a pass to the prequels. I did for a while Mm -hmm. because I, I, I refused to let myself down I no longer give them a pass, and I have the, I have the right to do that because I'm the fan, and I'm the diehard fan. Mm-hmm. And when you make a movie, knowing there are diehard fans, when you make a movie that is a pre-existing, uh, has a pre-existing fan base that is rabid, right? Yes. I mean, look at all people that have classic Universal monsters memorabilia. People dress like that. People have shops that are based on it. People have tattoos. They have hairstyles, clothing styles, bands. The Misfits is a band, you know, where it's like, well, they base a ton of their music on this kind of stuff. Like, it has impacted millions of people. When you when you create something for them, they those fans have the, the obligation to be honest about how they feel about it. Mm-hmm. That said, they can choose to love it because it's more of what they love. Yeah. Right? Right. I will watch episodes two I hate it but I will watch it I will watch episode I will watch the Phantom Menace the whole time I'll be rolling my eyes and disgusted at some of it Mm -hmm. but I'll watch it it's still Star Wars and I'd rather have that than nothing this movie to me resembles this the the Star Wars uh, and that's I thought I gave it a six out of ten I didn't think it was a terrible movie but it could have been really good Mm -hmm. They had the trappings of a great movie in there somewhere. You know, you've got uh, the world's premier action star who doesn't do horror movies, by the way. Yeah. Um, And they could have made him, they could have required him to do his a, a acting instead of his hammy acting, which is what he did. Uh, If you get a better director than Alex Kurtzman, who's his entire resume reads like somebody who is essentially like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Or, yes, Mr. Abrams, I know exactly what you'd like me to do. <laughs> Insert lens flare. Got it. I mean, it's. I just feel like what they did here was say, you know what would be cool? Let's mix all the drinks together and make a suicide. You know if you ever did that where you go to 7-Eleven and you just get every single soda and you call it a suicide drink for some reason? <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I don't believe
2: uh, in doing that. But,
0: yes, I know people no, who do it. No, no.
2: no. <laughs> children do it. Yeah, right. I feel like that is essentially what this movie has become, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. uh,
2: which was like grab the sweetest actor, grab the sweetest... A production you can from uh, guys like Alex Kurtzman, right? And all the writers, David Coepp, who's done some good stuff. Christopher McQuarrie's done some great stuff, in fact. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, grab some of these guys and, and, and then you've got some sweetness there. And then, you know, you get this pretty Egyptian girl. And I think she, I don't know if she's actually Egyptian or not, but she looks the part pretty well. And then try to make her scary, which she's not. Um, you know, uh, throw in every single horror trope you can figure out that works with this, but don't make it too scary because it's not a horror action movie. (laughs) By the time this was done, they had alienated what I think all of us wanted, which was a true return to form reboot, remake, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. We wanted the mummy and we wanted to be, we wanted to be satisfied and satiated and, and, and eagerly awaiting the next release, which could be Van Helsing or, or whatever that's coming up next. Instead, all you hear about is, Oh, did they just do this for real? Like, are they, this screams Spider-Man Two. Like, well, the next movie's going to be, uh, we're going to have venom and blah, 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 we got plans. Well, those plans were all canceled. <laughs> those plans were canceled because yeah. uh, people didn't want it. People. And when you asked earlier, what can we do? There's not much we can do. People are doing it. They're not seeing this movie. People are doing it. They are being a harsh critic. And I think Universal is far too invested in this now to not make upcoming movies. They've got to do it. But I think they're going to be they, – they, they would be wise to be cautious and learn from uh, the fact that this movie is not getting great reviews. The fact that when you go, you can choose any seat you want on a Friday evening that's scary for a movie of this size a tentpole film yes they have to learn from this if they want the following movies to be successful and i hope that the voice that reaches them is these are horror movies let's make them a little bit
0: scary mm-hmm. well in the film's defense because i didn't hate every aspect of it i did think that they addressed the horror more than i was even expecting and i was happy with that there's certainly a uh, a J horror type of flavor to it. I mean, and we've seen that a lot lately for sure, but I honestly respected that. I really enjoyed um, the creepiness to it. And I thought it was somewhat creepy. I now I, and I've heard a lot of people say this. So at this point, it's just not, you know, I'll wrap this up soon, but I, I wish I liked seeing, I like seeing mummies with um wraps around them. Just saying, even though yes, she's very yes, attractive, but, but man, that, that bugged me so bad, and I mean, I have a laundry list of things that I could complain about, so I'll just close my thoughts with by saying something positive. I did respect the amount of horror that was in it, because it was actually more than I thought there would be, and I was happy about that fact. So, anyways, I could actually talk to you about this movie <laughs> for quite some time. I know that we've had some coverage, I mean, I, I've reviewed it over on um, Movie Podcast Weekly, there's a tremendous review on Universal Monsters Cast. And, um, you know, there will be more talk. This is one of the big films of the year. So, of course, we're going to have it, um, discuss it a lot on the network. But I just want the horror fans to know that I really know this. I, and I think they do. I think you all know this. The horror films can be great cinema. They can be great works of art in their own right. Like where where all the aspects across the board are. Because usually, Metroid, like we're usually like... Uh yeah, that the film it had great great like special effects or, or it had great practical effects and you know, stuff like that. But no 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 no. What I'm saying is across the board we can have this, like John Carpenter's Halloween or The Thing or The Shining, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. I mean horror cinema can have great films too. So um I'll say it one last time. It's okay for horror fans to admit if this movie disappointed you and like you said, Matroid, I think we should get the word out there. We don't have to be disrespectful or like one time it was in 19, what was that? 1997 when Batman and Robin came out, there was like a screening or something. I read this in Harry Knowles's book. I meant to find it for this, but um, in the screening, somebody yelled out death to Schumacher, right? To Joel Schumacher. <laughs> And I think that is ridiculous and awful. Like people who, you know, I completely disagree. I am against that 100%. You know, I don't think we have to be jerks or mean-spirited or like, you know, want to attack filmmakers and stuff like that. That's ridiculous. Um, But I just think, you know, we need to be a, a vocal community with what horror cinema is. And we need to preserve what we love about it by standing up for it. And um, it's okay for us to pay. Now, I know like, it's like talking out of two sides of my mouth. But I still, I was very conflicted because I'm like, you know what? I still want to support it in the theater. And I'm still glad I paid my 10 bucks to see it. Because, you know, it's a big budget horror film. that's making, you know, summer popcorn budget. And I think that's great. There's no shame in that. But anyway, that's my two cents. But it was a 4.5 out of 10 for me. I told the uh, non-horror fans, I told them to avoid it over on Movie Podcast Weekly. But for horror fans, obviously you're going to see it. So I call it like a low-priority rental. I think you can get around to it whenever you get a chance. But, but, uh, you know don't expect a whole lot and Matroid you said you gave it a six out of 10 is that right? I give it a six out of 10 and I actually say
2: I don't care what kind of movie fan you are this may catch you. Uh, mm. go see it in theaters you know We need this movie to succeed more than it is so that they don't give up on the rest because I think that what they are trying to do the shared u- shared movie universe is nothing new. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's now quite uh, in vogue. I would say I want to see where they're going with it. I want to see these remade. I want to see them successful. I want the bad taste of uh, Hugh Jackman's Van Helsing washed out of my mouth with a new one. (laughs) I want uh, want this movie to succeed beyond how I feel about it. It was worth seeing in the theater. It wasn't a bad movie. There were a lot of great elements to the movie. In fact, some things that uh, I thought were rather successful. Um, but I, I can sum up my entire feeling on this movie with one phrase, and that is uh, the extremely unnecessary, distracting, and ridiculous double iris.
0: Mm. Yeah.
2: I don't feel like that is something that you need. I feel like that is something that is inserted into a movie to say, see, special effects, yeah. or <laughs> see, you're supposed to be scared now. Right. It, it, I, it's insulting to me. It's very insulting to me because I don't think people actually think that's very cool. I don't think the eyes need to be black. I don't think they need to roll on the back of the head. I don't think that there needs to be a, a mouth that extends beyond a natural distance. I don't think that we need to insult people by telling them what is scary. I think we need to scare them. Mm-hmm. and I think in order to do that, you just put forth a real mummy the way we expect it. And give it some, give it some, uh, tension. Mm-hmm. I never felt like anyone was in any real danger in this movie. Mm-mm. I think that's a pretty big problem. Yes. So, uh, the, the, the poster says a lot, those double irises, right? The, the, the two pupils and the two, I think it's the iris, right? The colorful part. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's correct. I can never remember. I, have, I, have, I leave the eyes alone. I look into my wives and I fall deep in love and yes. cheesy stuff, but I don't really pay attention to the, the anatomy. <laughs> um, that said, I freaking hate that. I thought it was stupid. I thought it was clownish. I thought it was insulting. And I think that, that is, uh, that's what this movie is. It's, it's an over-exaggerated statement um, when they didn't need it. <laughs> Just bring me a nice, nice, suspenseful movie. Uh, ring in the the mythology of Egypt. There's such a rich pool to pull from. Mm-hmm. I don't care if they want to use a female mummy. Great. Yeah. I don't care if if she's attractive or ugly. Mm-hmm. That has no bearing on it to me. Now, the way they made the movie, of course, she's attractive. She had to be for the for the story to work but I didn't find that to be all that interesting. I could talk about this movie forever. Six to ten, go see this movie. Support it so that the next movie will be made.
0: Yes. Yeah, that sounds good. And the last thing I'll say about the shared universe, the the dark universe, it was just completely evident to me, just crystal clear, that they were obviously trying to duplicate Marvel's model for what they've done with the MCU. And it, it just feels like, you know, with, with Dr. Jekyll in this and everything, it feels exactly (laughs) like the, they're making superhero movies. And it's like, no, these are not superhero movies. There's just a real desperation there. You know, you can smell blood in the water. It's like, they're desperate. Just kind of like the DC was, you know, to get things up and running, to catch up with Marvel. It's like, no, just, just take the time. And do it right. Tell us good stories. And, you know, anyways, I'll get off the soapbox.
2: No, I think you're right. You're right. It's, uh, they're
0: behind the eight ball. hmm That's right. and you know, we feel it that way. But anyways, that's our uh, little mini review of The Mummy. But once again, please check out Universal Monsters Cast for their full-length feature review. I think that's that episode's like two hours or something. It's amazing. They do a great job. And they even have like a spoiler section where they go in to end up spoiler talk as well. It'll be linked in the show notes to make sure you can hear uh, Joel Wolfman and Dr. Shock on The Mummy. All right, Matroid. Well, you have been extremely generous with your time and with your knowledge tonight. I'm really grateful for you. Thank you for stepping up to the plate. And I hope that the Horror Movie Podcast community, the audience that listens to this show... I hope you will pay Matroid back by visiting him (laughs) at his house. No, I'm just kidding. But by visiting him on the Sci-Fi Podcast. And uh, tell them all the places that they can go and support your work, sir. Well, they can certainly find me on the Sci-Fi Podcast.
2: That's kind of a given. Um, Other than the Sci-Fi Podcast, I can be found... Uh, writing articles for the Daily Herald, which is a a local Utah newspaper. However, because of the fascination that is the internet, which we all think is so damn important, you can read my articles online. I write under the name Gary the Unicorn. I'm warning you, they're not particularly good. Uh, I also write under the name Matt Daniels quite frequently, and I actually write a lot of uh, uh, fairly serious stuff, uh, jabs at what I consider uh, the ilks of not just bad stuff in life, but things that are detracting from what makes life valuable. Uh, I'm trying to find gratitude and things all the time. So I'm, I'm writing things lately on that kind of spectrum uh, things uh, that I think are fascinating. So if you want to follow Matt Daniels, uh, you can find me all over the place, but I don't really have any social media stuff other than the sci-fi podcast.com, which is also, you know, has links to our social media sites from there. Uh, but definitely check that out. And obviously don't be dummy. Go to MPN, go to the movie you're going to want to be a part of that. I promise. Yeah. Good stuff coming up. And listen to all of our sister
0: podcasts and love them as much as I do.
2: Seven podcasts for seven brothers.
0: That's right. All right, my friend. Thank you again, Matroid, for being here. And uh, give all my love to the the Sci-Fi Podcast hosts and crew over there. You guys are the best.
2: I certainly will. Thanks so much for having me on, man. It was a blast.
0: Absolutely.
3: Oh. <sighs>
0: all right at this point in episode 120 of horror movie podcast it is my absolute honor to bring you my feature review of it comes at night i just want to talk I i want honest answers do you have any idea what's going on out there First of all, I hope the entire HMP community will trust me enough to listen to this review. I won't make it too long or anything. I'm taking this particular review very seriously, and I've thought about it for days. I wanted to be strategic, just to make sure that I do my job right on this one. I won't reveal any spoilers for It Comes at Night, so this will be a spoiler-free review. And then, once my co-hosts have caught up with the film... Uh, Josh and Dave have not seen it yet. I am positive that we're going to have a spoiler discussion in the future in an upcoming episode. Sooner rather than later, I cannot wait for that. But if you have not seen It Comes at Night yet, you're in safe hands with me. I'll tell you a little bit about the film and review it without giving away anything. So, if you've only seen the teaser trailer for this movie, then you actually know very little about it, because the teaser trailer is done extremely well. I hope you haven't watched, you know, the newer trailer where they show more, because um, to in my opinion, they do spoil some information that you shouldn't know going into the movie, or I think that, you know, it, it takes away some of the impact. So, the teaser trailer, though, is definitely worth your time to watch, but... At the same time, it's interesting because it kind of gives you the wrong impression. Uh, I'm, I'm happy that it will attract people to the theater because it does look very promising, but I don't feel that the teaser trailer is representative of what we actually get in the film. It gives you the distinct impression that this is a typical full-blown horror movie. It looks like some kind of infected type of film or something like that. Or in other words, it appears to be a quote-unquote monster movie. And actually, I'm happy to report that this is what I would call a pure survival horror film, meaning it's set in the real world, in cold reality, and everything that happens in this film could occur to any one of us tomorrow, right? So don't go into this film expecting a monster movie or a typical horror genre entry. This is set in real life with real characters who seem to be real people, at least. So uh, I desperately want everyone who's listening to this review, to go see this film. So I'm going to tell you right up front, this is a must-see horror movie for 2017, but I do want to make sure that you have the correct expectations going into it. Because I fear that a lot of hardcore horror fans won't really consider this to be much of a horror film. I think they'll find it very mild, because honestly, and I'm reluctant to make this comparison in case this put you off on the movie, but It Comes at Night is actually a lot closer to something like No Escape than it is to something like 28 Days Later. Now, I know that you people have made fun of me a lot for No Escape, but as I've argued in a previous episode, Green Room, which is another great film that this community considers to be a horror movie, is very similar in story beats and theme and so forth, the things that happen... It's very similar to No Escape. Anyway, I'm not going to get into that argument with you now. (laughs) But my point is, even if you don't like No Escape or you don't believe me and you haven't even tried to watch No Escape, shame on you. That's fine. Don't hold that against this movie. I just wanted you to know that you're looking at a survival horror type of film rather than a full-blown blood guts gore and monsters kind of flick. Okay, so I want to make sure that I talk to you about writer-director Trey Edward Schultz. I'm telling you right now, Trey Edward Schultz is someone that we need to keep our eyes on. I think we need to watch his career with interest, to quote uh, Senator Palpatine. (laughs) He wrote and directed It Comes at Night, and it was his second feature film, according to IMDb at least, And I actually discovered his first feature-length release last year. It's this remarkable little film called Cresha. It's spelled like Cresha, K-R-I-S-H-A, but it's pronounced Cresha. And I classified Cresha as a social horror film, quote unquote. And I don't really mean that it's a horror film. In other words, we wouldn't review it on this podcast. But what I mean by giving it that designation is that social horror um, refers to it being a drama that's taken to a very heightened, very extreme level that's just south of the actual actual horror genre line. So, for instance, just to give you an example, do you remember that awful scene in Pet Cemetery, where the characters are at an unexpected funeral? Okay, this was a funeral that they did not anticipate. And the husband and his father-in-law make this awful scene at the funeral... And they get into this altercation, a physical altercation, while they're standing beside the casket. And it's this terrible scene where the dead is disturbed, and it's very upsetting. Now, that is something that I would call social horror, because in terms of taking a dramatic situation right up to the line before it crosses um, over into actual horror, um, that's what I consider to be social horror. So, that's what Schultz's film, Crescia, is. It's about a family that gathers for Thanksgiving, another Thanksgiving movie, and the black sheep of the family, Kresha, decides to show up, and of course, she unintentionally crashes the party and ruins the holiday, I mean, that's not a spoiler, because it's obvious from the moment that you, <laughs> from the moment the film opens, that she is a disaster, she's actually a recovering addict, and she's had a messed up life, and we see all of this unfold very painfully and awkwardly within this movie, so, you've got these awful events taking place among family members within a household. Now, I love Crescia because of how disturbing it is, and that's what I've been talking about here for the past minute. That may have been confusing to you, I'm sorry, but like I'm just describing Crescia a little bit to lead into the nature of It Comes at Night. So, the director, Schultz, he plays in Crescia. I mean, he's the writer-director of that film as well, and he's actually cast in there. And you can tell by looking at the other casting, and the character names as well as the actors' names, that Cresha seems to be closely based on real events from the director's life. Now, I don't know this with any certainty, but um, I I believe that Krescha was a film that he made to kind of exorcise some demons and awful memories from his past life. I hope to interview this director at some at some point. And I'd like to ask him about that, even though it's probably a pretty personal question. But I would like to kind of, uh, and maybe he's already said this in an interview somewhere. So if you find that interview, let me know, please. But but basically, um, you can tell by the film that it comes from a real place, especially since he actually cast himself in the film with his name. So anyways, that film, Cresha, made me love this filmmaker. And when I heard that he had made a horror film, I could not wait to see it because I was like, Wow, his drama, Cresha, took me already far enough to the edge and I'm like I can't even imagine where he's going to go with the horror film. And so, much like Cresha, It Comes at Night is basically horror within a household. And that's how I would describe it. And I don't mean by that I don't mean it's a haunted house movie or anything. That's that's not what I'm getting at, but it's horror among the social structure of people who are living together. Horror within a household. So here's the premise, no spoilers. It Comes at Night opens after some airborne contagion has crippled the world and has become a pandemic. This disease is wiping out the population and has collapsed the basic social services and structure of the country. And it's extremely contagious. And by the way, side note, this is a very small contained film. So, you know, we, we learn about this basically that this is the scenario through the same, through similar means as like Night of the Living Dead. We kind of learn, I mean, it's a small story, horror within a household, much like Night of the Living Dead actually, except this doesn't involve zombies or living dead. So you have a worldwide problem that's reduced in stakes down to a small Family story, and that's that's one of the things I love so much about this. Because even though it's not like covering the whole world, like World War Z, and showing us all these different places and all these different problems and blah blah, you know, this is just the stakes are still very high and very personal to us because we relate and care about this family. That's fantastic. Anyway, back to the premise. So we have this small family: a husband and wife and their teenage son. They're holed up in this cabin their cabin home in the woods basically. And the inciting incident occurs when an intruder tries to break into the house claiming that he has a wife and a young child hiding out in the woods and they need help. Okay, and that's all I'm going to say about the premise and what this film is about because what you have here is a film that's full of questions. And these aren't questions that are from you for the film. It works differently. These are questions that are from the film and they're for you as a viewer. It's, it's, again, survival horror, so it's what would I do if I were in this situation? Now, we can all understand what it would be like to live or, or be in a survival situation where you have to protect your family. I mean, you have to keep them safe from the illness, but you also have to keep them safe from people who could potentially kill you or steal your house and your family food and you know what I mean? Just totally wipe you out because it's dog eat dog, so to speak. So the film poses all these questions to us as we identify with the husband and father played by Joel Edgerton. I don't know. Maybe, um, maybe if, uh, a young lady or our horror ladies who watch this, maybe they identify with the wife in the film. I don't, I don't know. I'm just, just putting it out there. But the fact is the Joel Edgerton character, he's our lead character in this particular film. So, It Comes at Night also seems to ask, how much are we willing to hold out hope for humanity or to protect humanity in that um, how, how much are we willing to be humane toward others or give them the benefit of the doubt or try to have faith in them or try to believe someone else at the risk of protecting our family or putting them in jeopardy or endangering them? And so, what is morally right in this new landscape of this new world where where things are bleak and people are dying. So that's fascinating to me. And this film brings you into it like it's real life. This does not feel movie-ish to me. This feels real life to me and very upsetting. And so as the story of the film develops, there's a darkness and a bleakness, this cold coldness that sinks within you. At least it did for me more and more as I watched the film and I just became increasingly afraid and full of dread and fear as the viewer. Now, I'd like to go on and talk about this movie more. You could probably tell I'm kind of excited about it, but I'm going to save that for when we reconvene and talk about it more in depth in our spoiler discussion once my co-hosts see it. And so I hope that if you were on the fence or that you hadn't seen it yet, I hope that what I've talked to you about so far, I hope that that is enough of a pitch to get you curious about it, or you know, to get you to at least check it out so you can listen to our spoiler discussion when it comes and to be totally right up with us. So anyways, I'm going to leave you with this note, and it's what I wrote on Twitter after seeing the movie. It comes at night. Pure survival horror, not a monster movie or a typical genre entry, but horror within a household. It Comes at Night is a 9.5 out of 10 to me. I say see it in the theater and buy it. I'm going to buy it. Uh, This is my favorite horror movie of the year thus far, and I'm certain it'll make my top 10 list here on Horror Movie Podcast, as well as over on Movie Podcast Weekly, where we cover all genres. This thing is a must-see Please go see it so you can be ready for our spoiler discussion and to support great cinema. I think we should support Trey Edward Schultz and feel free to email us your thoughts, comments, questions about this particular film so we can discuss your feedback during our spoiler discussion. You can email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com and just be sure to put it comes at night in the title, please. So this is a 9.5 out of 10. See it in the theater, buy it. And I'm telling you right now, listeners, this just isn't for the horror fans, but for all cinephiles, if you love the cinema, take note, writer-director Trey Edward Schultz is someone to watch.
3: I saw him, really. He's in the closet. He has yellow
5: eyes, and his mouth is about this long, and he has teeth, and they're curled like this, and he made sounds.
3: What kind of sound?
2: Yeah, that'd scare me pretty good. Really? But he's all gone now, champ. See?
3: He's in there.
2: I saw him. In... Really? Just, Tad, you saw him in your dreams. In your head, nowhere else. Tad, listen to me. There's no such thing as real monsters. Only in stories. There's no real monsters, though.
0: Oh, yes, there are. If you've been following the horror movie cat hashtag on Twitter, then you will know that there are real monsters. (laughs) So let me set this final segment up for you by providing a little bit of context here. We're actually going to be joined in a way by Wolfman Josh, who was kind enough to record some clips for us. He sat down and uh, did some (laughs) recording. And it was separate from this episode, so we didn't actually get to do this with him. But what's interesting is he sent me his clips, and I wanted to respond as well. So I, you know, I, I broke these up, and basically, we're gonna go through the horror pet <laughs> submissions and award our winners. And um, it's kind of interesting because you know I'm gonna listen to what Josh has to say about those, which is pre-recorded. And then I'm going to be chiming in in between. So obviously Josh is not going to be responding to what I say because his part is pre-recorded. So anyways, he's going to kick it off and explain, you know, what went down. He's going to give a little bit of uh, feedback and info from uh, episode 119, our Horror Pets episode. So I'm going to kick it over to the Wolfman, Josh Legary.
5: What's up, horror movie fans? This is Wolfman, Josh, and Jay and Dave. It takes a monster to defeat a monster. (laughs) I am so sorry that I missed tonight's discussion. I could not get out of my other engagement that I had this evening, despite my best attempts. I wanted to share with you guys a little bit about the huge response that we got to our Horror Pets episode. I was a little flabbergasted by it, actually. I know when Jay and I wrapped up that recording, we thought, well, that was... uh, Maybe not our best. I think I even made the comment, not all themed episodes are created equally. But man, we got a tremendous amount of feedback from that episode, way more than our regular episodes. Now, the actual comments uh, on HorrorMoviePodcast.com don't necessarily reflect that. Uh, you know, it's, um, it's like average or below average in terms of the amount of comments that we got. But people reaching out just to say, good job, I love that show, that rarely happens. Usually our comments are about the things that we messed up on or forgot, and we definitely got our fair share of those. Many, many of our listeners were kind enough to point out that the reason Jay and I were so confused about the Monkey Shines poster looking familiar was that it is, in fact, the same type of musical monkey found on the cover of Stephen King's Skeleton Crew anthology and Jay himself even noticed that and posted a photo of that at the website at horrormoviepodcast.com but even uh, today 2 weeks after our recording we're still getting faithful listeners tweeting us and texting us to let us know yes you in fact are thinking of the Skeleton Crew cover so thank you for that everyone uh, you are dead right Also, I noticed that the Monkey Shines Blu-ray artwork has been updated since the original cover. He now holds a straight razor, or she, I should say, rather, holds a straight razor that's, you know, covered with blood. And that kind of plays into my childhood memory of this as well. So, interesting. We also got um, some interesting comments. Maybe something which uh, Matroid, if he's on the show, is going to be talking about tonight We had a listener named Jason Strong wrote in to let us know, uh, guys. Currently about halfway through the latest episode, on the topic of cats stealing baby's breath, there's actually a pretty interesting segment of the Cat's Eye Anthology which addresses that very topic and infuses the idea with a bit of fantasy elements, and Evil Troll is heavily featured. Thanks in part to some very impressive practical effects and a great cat actor, this segment has always had a special place in my heart. If anyone hasn't seen it, I think it's worth checking out. It definitely provided a heavy dose of nightmare fuel for my 8-year-old self back in the day. Thanks for doing such a great job recording and producing the podcast. It's always been a highlight of my week. So thank you, Jason. Uh, Jonathan Watkins also wrote in to tell us about Cat's Eye. And I also saw several tweets about that this week as well. So our listeners, as usual, are on top of it and far more knowledgeable than us. There's some excellent comments on the website from listeners like Andred. I would recommend you guys check those out. Brian a.k.a. Brain from the Sci-Fi podcast, also wrote in to tell us about his personal animals attack story he said Mm -hmm. hey love to talk about (laughs) animal attacks when i was 17 our german shepherd went nuts and attacked me but into my arm and i had to defend myself with a two by four until Uh my stepdad could run out with his 38 and put him down so those movies really resonate with me anyway great show carry on insane story from brain thank you for sharing that with us Mm -hmm. i had my own little animal attack story this week i have had two dogs in my lifetime and a few cats when i was little But not in my adult life have I had a dog since mine passed away, which was very traumatic for me. I had an Australian Shepherd named Melly or Melbourne was what her full name was, and uh, an American Eskimo named Kino. And both of them passed away from cancer right around the time I got married and had kids. So that was sad. I just got a new dog. It's an English Pointer mixed with a German pointer, and uh, because of the English pointer roots, I had to give it an English name, and not being very well read, uh, the top of the mind for me was anything Sherlock Holmes related, so my new English pointer's name is Watson, so... Uh, be on the lookout for Watson and Watson the crime doctor will be on the lookout for many awful things as well but anyway so we had a service person come over was delivering something I was helping the service person my son who was supposed to be in bed came down and couldn't sleep and so my wife said don't worry stay here with the dog I need to step out and talk to your dad for a second she left and the dog he was really just a puppy started jumping around on top of him scratching him and biting him got on his back and was like tearing at his clothes and the puppy was just playing but my son being very little was terrified and when we came back in he was just in tears and I've never seen him like that you know he's been sad before from being punished or doing something bad and he has cried like that maybe from a nightmare once but I think this was actually even way more intense than that like he had a really traumatic experience with the puppy and it's been difficult to kind of convince him that's just how puppies play or whatever so I don't know that was kind of interesting on the heels of our horror pets episode i had a dog who needed to heal
0: oh no that, that story like breaks my heart i'm so sad about that and it, it also brain story as well i read that on the website and i was like this is horrifying and terrible anyways so right now at this point in josh's recording we move into reviewing these photos that people sent mostly on twitter so if you go to twitter and you search for the hashtag Horror movie cat, you'll be able to see these as well. We're also going to have the winners posted in the show notes for episode 120 at horrormoviepodcast.com. So let's move into these. And again, I'll be playing Josh's clips and then I'll be responding to what he says as he responds to the photos.
5: Now, the most important element of our horror pets episode was that we were having listeners send in pictures of their horror pets and share them with us and jay was going to pick three winners for sticker packs from our good friend of the show armored foe who's an artist and has some really cool horror and kind of comic book sci-fi stickers to give away to our listeners three sets of three stickers and i have talked with jay separately and i am also actually going to give up three of my stickers so that we can have four packs of three because we got so many awesome entries and jay and dave lost. To be the judges of these, but I'm going to share them with you now. As these were coming into Twitter and Instagram, I tagged these with the hashtag horror movie cat. As you know, you can find horror movie podcast on Twitter and Instagram at horror movie cast. And so, being the goofball that I am, I tagged them horror movie cat. All right, our entries are from Fennostrum, nineteen seventy four. He sends us a very spooky picture of his cat. It's beautiful lighting, and kind of it reminds me of the lighting in the film Sinister. So great job there on the photography. Kind of a shot from the back of the cat looking out the window in silhouette. Beautiful,
0: beautiful shot there, Fennostrum, nineteen seventy four. And what I wanted to point out about this one, actually, Van Ostrom's 1974 cat, Um, if you look closely, (laughs) you can see that this cat is sitting among its uh, kingdom of cat scratch towers. There are these posts covered with carpet that the cat can scratch. And and like this cat is sitting among these towers and looking out the window, it looks like the cat is stalking someone planning to kill them. So anyway, that was pretty awesome. And then we also ended up getting uh, another photo from Van Ostrom as well. Here's Josh's comments. Van Ostrom
5: 1974 sent us another photo. This one's a little stranger. This is a different cat, I believe. Up in a window, biting what seems to be a shower cap. So I don't know if this cat is recreating a scene from the movie Psycho, but it appears to be.
0: So good job, Van Ostrom 1974. Wolfman Josh stole my comments right there. Um, I thought of psycho as well. <laughs> and what's funny is my wife, I showed these photos to my wife and it, and even though she's not a horror fan at all, she's like, Oh, okay. They must've been going for a, a little psycho theme there. So, uh, well done. Very impressive.
5: Red cap Jackson is one. He says dead serious horror pet Chikara. He's got a beautiful white cat. Looks very much like the white snowball cat from the mummy 1999. The Brendan Fraser uses the scare away mummies.
0: Yeah, and I just want to say that this uh, white cat, Chikara, has an unmistakable don't mess with me or red cap kind of face. So I got to stop smarting off to red cap Jack in podcast because I'm a little bit frightened of this cat. <laughs> Jason
5: Strong, previously mentioned Jason Strong, sent us a picture of his cat, says, uh, I think he's channeling the blob, just a big, beautiful fat cat that uh, looks like those cats. When I grew up in San Diego, we had these fat cat t-shirts from san diego i don't know what they were someone can find the photo online but uh that's what this cat looks like
0: kind of a garfield looking cat
5: basically what was what we have here
0: that's so funny because josh and i are somewhat close in age and i was into these cat (laughs) t-shirts in like the late 80s early 90s that were skateboarding related and they were like a, a skinny scroungy cat it was always some kind of a skateboarding related cat anyways um so this picture here of this beautiful orange tabby cat i think that's an orange tabby i love this one because my all-time favorite cat of my own looked exactly like this fat kitty so uh jason strong i love your cat
5: ashley at barely ashley on Twitter says, Lucy just doing cat things and trying to interrupt my game and we've got this uh, beautiful gray cat. My great grandmother had a cat that looked exactly like your cat Ashley. Looks like it has green eyes. Gorgeous cat. Standing up in front of the television while Ashley is trying to play Friday the 13th The Game. Ashley also wondered if there were other horror movie podcast listeners who were on Friday the 13th The Game and wanted to connect to play. I personally have bought my very first gaming system a PS4 to play Friday the 13th of the game. I have not had time to do it yet. I've heard some complaints about it, heard a lot of good things about it as well. I also heard something I'm really excited about, that you can get the retro NES styled and colored Jason for the Friday the 13th game. Apparently, it's just a skin that changes the coloring, but I love it. It looks awesome. And I think the music is different as well. Maybe it's it's Kagan's music. I know Kagan did some work on that theme for the game, so that would be awesome if that's what it was. Anyway, Ashley's Cat, blocking review of the game. Classic cat, just does not care. One iota for its owner. Awesome
0: picture. Thanks for sharing that, Ashley. <laughs> and speaking of uh, games, so recently uh, GeekCast Rye from the GeekCast Live podcast and Movie Podcast Weekly, he heard me whining about not being able to get a Nintendo Entertainment System, you know, the original version from the mid 80s. Uh, he, he's heard me whine about that a lot. So he ended up just like purchasing a Raspberry Pi and sending it out to me. And this actually gave access to all, like, 900-plus games of the original NES. And I just wanted to put out there, even though I'm not much of a gamer, I don't know a whole lot about video games anymore, that there were probably, like, 10 to 15 horror-related video games. So it had that original Friday the 13th game on there, which was, I I regret to say, kind of terrible. I I did play it, and it it was, you know not the most user-friendly or most entertaining game, but I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like, it is what it is. But anyways, I don't know why I went into that because this new game looks, this new Friday the 13th game looks incredible and you can see it here um, on the start screen. And this cat, <laughs> barely Ashley's cat is there. And I, I just wanted to ask Ashley if you're a cinematographer because um, the way this shot is, kind of framed and balanced out i i think it's pretty great a mise-en-scene there so nice work there Ashley, and thanks for sending in your photo
5: dave zeigert might be zeigert because his handle is DaveZ9870 says, How about killer tortoises? It's a bit of a slow burn. So <laughs> I think Dave should be deducted points for that joke, but it uh, no. <laughs> got a lot of love on Twitter. So good job, Dave. Thank you for that. Nice tortoise. I don't know if that is, in fact, your tortoise and whether or not we can award that with the sticker pack, but nice tortoise shot here.
0: Dave, I just want you to know that is brilliant. I think it's hilarious and uh, well done, sir. I welcome such jokes anytime you want.
5: Keisha Suarez, or possibly Keisha Suarez, on Twitter, sends us her picture of Gilly. Gilly was the dog who was very upset that we didn't post this episode when we first promised, so I was glad to deliver this for Gilly and for Keisha, or Keisha, I apologize for the name pronunciation, let us know. And there it is, wrapped up in what looks to me like a ice cream blanket, themed blanket on the couch, very cute. Very cute, Gilly. Shout out from Horror Movie
0: Podcast. (laughs) And uh, by the way, so I pronounce it, my take at your name, um, I would say Kisa, or, you know, no H in there, Kisa. Anyways, let us know how to pronounce your name or how to mispronounce your name further. (laughs) This is a, a, a photo of a very sleepy puppy and um, my guess was as i was looking at this i'm like okay it looks like that dog stayed up too late watching horror movies so that's my theory
5: greg bench the gray man sends us a couple of photos here he sends in a shot of his new cat it says just in time for horror pets episode my family has a new kitten her name is ripley i love it he says it's cliche but then he sends another photo later with ripley actually laying on his usc ss nostromo t-shirt i did not say that well for the alien fans you guys i've exposed myself as a poser however <laughs> i've already said i don't i don't love those movies but <laughs> awesome i love the shot of ripley on the mm. shirt very cool very appropriate. Greg also sent another weird photo. He says, here's our cat, Carmi. She keeps me company for those early morning horror viewings. And I know Jason is one who gets up early to watch horror movies alone as well. Yes. Cat can be very useful company for those situations. But here's the weird thing about the photo. Carmi, who does look like a killer, um, is holding what appears to be a rare horror movie podcast business card. So I don't know how <laughs> Carmi got a hold of that, but I, I like it, Carmi. Good job. <laughs>
0: That's hilarious. So a couple things about this, the gray man. Um, I I don't think it was cliche to name your cat Ripley. And in fact, what may have been cliche is if you had named it Jones, right? Because Ripley actually names her cat an alien Jonesy, right? And um, I I think horror critic Scott Weinberg, I love that guy. His his favorite all-time horror film, hands down, is alien, of course. And he does have a cat that he did name Jones. So anyways, gray man, that's interesting to me. It's like, um, okay, if you get a cat and you want to go, you want to riff on the alien thing, do you name it Jones or Ripley? So that's kind of cool. Anyways, the other thing is uh, this calico here, Carmi. (laughs) Yes. Carmi did get a, um, a business card from a horror movie podcast, we're uh, making deals, making connections. So thanks. And, And yes, as Wolfman said, I am a person who watches horror films early in the morning as well. So that was pretty cool to me to hear that.
5: Jody Horror Guy sends us, Cake the Cat is getting ready for the annual purge. Another just awful joke. (laughs) Good job, Jody. When for 12 hours, all kitty mischief is legal. I like that. I like that, Jody. Thank you for sharing us. Cake the Cat, who is
0: about to get mischievous with the purge. That's brilliant. And the thing is, what are you going to know about Jody is Jody and I are both dads. And so obviously... Jody's like me in this regard. He appreciates good dad jokes. I mean, I'm a dad joke kind of guy. You all probably guessed that about me. But anyways, it strikes me, and I'm noticing a trend here that most of our horror movie podcast listeners, at least those who have sent in pictures, it seems like the majority of, of what we own would be cats. And uh, y'all are cat lovers like I am. And I, I don't I don't know. I would have guessed that. I, I would have pegged the most of the horror community to be dog lovers. But I guess... Maybe it does make sense with the whole black cat thing, Um, but I haven't seen a whole lot of black cats either. I mean, I used to have uh, two black cats, so I don't know if y'all are superstitious or what, but anyways, um, anybody who's a cat lover, Jody, will know that cats uh, believe in the kitty purge and they believe that it's all year long because if you've ever owned a cat, you know that cats do whatever the hell they want 365 days a year. (laughs)
5: now james waters of michigan this may be cheating at james of michigan on twitter he sent us a picture of his little devil athena she just turned one year old her middle name is cujo and we in fact have a giant yes. saint bernard photograph here again i think that might be cheating with jay of the dead making the winner choices here but good job james i, li- I like your puppy and uh you just need a little thing of hot chocolate to go around its neck for those rescue missions
0: I have no idea what Josh is talking about there because Cujo is one of the scariest horror pets ever. And so, and in fact, I just wanted to tell you, James, this photo here, I I would judge it as the third scariest photo among all of the horror pets that we got here. I think it's awesome. It's actually shot from a low angle. So the little Cujo puppy that's only a year old is is up in the frame. You're looking up at that. So it's in that power position where the dog is looking down at the camera. And I, I think that's I think that's keeping it real. I love that. And so uh clearly James Waters is dead serious about horror pet ownership because he even owns a St. Bernard. And Josh not that I would know because I'm actually more of a hot chocolate man myself, but I believe um, that those dogs carry brandy, isn't it? It's some kind of alcohol to supposedly warm people up who are stuck in avalanches and such. So anyways, pretty cool, James. I'm very impressed with that uh, <laughs> with That Cujo picks.
5: Next, we have Maynard the cat from Luna Purr at zombie underscore moon on Twitter. Maynard gives great horror movie cat face. I agree. She (laughs) looks amazing. She looks like she belongs in a pyramid protecting the mummy's tomb. Beautiful cat. Looks hairless. Mm -hmm. Looks like E.T. Good job, Maynard. And she says hashtag little black Philip. So I like that. I <laughs> like that as well. Luna's cat Maynard is also standing in front of a photograph or bust of Frankenstein's monster. Good job, Luna. Maynard is doing a great horror movie cat
0: face. This photo is incredible. Um, is is clearly, uh, without question, one of my favorites. I think it's the second scariest horror pet submission. So everybody has to look at this. You could see this picture in um, episode 120 horrormoviepodcast.com but I think the photo itself is a work of art honestly. The coloring in the photo the color of the cat the the color of the Frankenstein's monster statue in the background the way the cat looks and I just wanted to say uh, to our friend Luna Purr <laughs> I wonder if you would be willing if you would mind allowing us to use this photo and even to use Maynard as our HMP mascot. I think We've always needed a mascot for the show, and for a long time, I kicked around the idea of just creating a, you know, a brand new little monster. But I mean, this cat is pretty freaking cool. So I mean, maybe we can have a few mascots, but this should be at least one of them. And I love Maynard. So uh, let us know what you think about that. But Maynard the cat is truly great. People have to look at this. This is um. It, it, I, I think it's a sphinx cat right because they're real wrinkly and hairless or they have like extremely short hair but yeah the sphinx cat is a, a very freaky looking so awesome
5: jackie says my boyfriend and i think my dog currently listening to this episode with me looks <laughs> kind of like a xenomorph fast <laughs> metabolism equals a skinny puppy mm-hmm. and a very cute dog there jackie and yes we agree looks like a xenomorph
0: I completely agree. And yeah, that is definitely a skinny dog. I'm with you.
5: Even skinnier is Brand's dog, BK Falk, AKA The Boogie Brand, on Twitter. He says, My horror pet, Jude, he was so excited he stood on me when I asked if he wanted to watch a horror movie. Italian Greyhound, a beautiful dog. I was going to guess whip it, but that's because I'm not cultured in these things. I need to bone up on my Italian Greyhound identification. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's funny. But yeah, so I want to tell BK, the boogie brand. Um this is this is interesting because first of all, I think Jude is a great name for a dog. I, I love when animals have like people names. Like like you see a dog named Bill. I think that's freaking hilarious. And yeah, this ad- Italian Greyhound is pretty intimidating actually, and he looks like he's dead serious about kibbles and bits.
5: Scarlet at Gamerscarlet on Twitter says, imagine how many family members she has ingested. And we have, again, we have a nice big fat cat here from Scarlet laying next to a mouse chew toy. So thank you for
0: that photo. And, and what's neat here about this calico kitty here. I mean, this is a very, um, very fat little calico kitty. <laughs> and that that mouse chew toy that Wolfman described there, it looks flattened. It looks totally like a pancake a furry little pancake. And um, I don't know, for whatever reason, that picture really amused me.
5: Up next is Liam Leonard. My dog is a beastly freak, but he's not good with stairs, so I'm safe for now. Really creepy shot of Liam Leonard's dog. That may be our best
0: scary shot. I don't know if that is part of the contest. Yeah, it is a scary shot for sure, and I love how... You know, the dog is silhouetted there at the top of the stairs and it's looking down on Liam. I can only imagine condescendingly, right? And, and uh, I love your use of beastly freak there in your description, Liam. So props for that. That's an excellent pick.
5: We have Zena, Zena, Zena. Let us know how to pronounce it, Zena. I love this. At some new passion on Twitter. She says, my cat absolutely plots my death. Hashtag horror movie cat. And it's just a picture of her cat giving her what seems to be the evil eye in bed. Very scary photograph. (laughs) So thank you for sharing that with us, Zena. Love it.
0: Mm -hmm. And this is, uh, Zena has one of our black kitties. So, this is one of the, you know, the only black cat submissions there, and so I can appreciate and respect that, and this cat looks quite formidable, I have to say. Okay, and then uh, you're going to think I'm messing with all of you right now, listeners, but I do have a little dead serious horror type of challenge for you. I hope you'll do this if you're able to. Please go right now to horrormoviepodcast.com, episode 120, show notes, okay, if you go there, and you open up the show notes and kind of scroll down into the episode and you see the photos we have posted there, you can take a look at this Beagle photo that was sent in to us by Jamie Gordon. Now I'm going to play Josh's clip here um, real fast so everyone can have a chance to get here and look at this photo. This is very important. I want everybody to look at this and um, we'll hear what the Wolfman has to say about it first.
5: We got one from Jamie Gordon. Jamie says, here's Max doing his best come and play with us look. And a very cute beagle there
0: in Max. The dog. Okay, now don't be fooled, Wolfman and listeners out there. This beagle is not cute. It's actually evil. Now, at first blush, you might think this is a cute photo. But the more I've looked at it, and I have looked at this photo a lot because there is something about it that troubled me. I've come to realize that this is actually the number one scariest horror pet photo that we have received. Now, if you're skeptical, first of all, I hope you're looking at this photo. I'm going to freak you out right now, but you got to be looking at the picture. Look at this dog's eyes, okay? HorrorMoviePodcast.com, episode 120, show notes. You've got this beagle here with a head tilt, a.k.a. Michael Myers-style head tilt, And uh, standing in front of some wooden doors. And now stare at the face of this beagle, look into his eyes, and then listen to this. (laughs) See? Scary as hell, Jamie. That's a freaky dog picture, actually. It seems cute at first. But it's not, and that is the essence. That captures the heart and soul of what a horror pet actually is. Something that we think we can trust. We think it's man's best friend, but it's actually man's best fiend. And that's what we have here in Max. And doing that great come and play with us look. I love that caption because ostensibly, it is one dog there. And yet, (laughs) Jamie wrote, come and play with us. (laughs) Well done, Jamie. That one is exceptional. Um, Mad props for that picture.
5: We have Christopher Dewey said, our two beasts, Navy and Otter, both cats, plotting our destruction, no doubt. Hashtag horror movie cat. Yeah, I guarantee you they're planning your destruction, Christopher. Love it.
0: (laughs) And I would call this the cutest horror pets pick because actually these two beasts, as he calls them, Um, they're snuggled up together they're kind of embracing and it looks like they're hugging and i think that's hilarious to have a a cute horror pets picture (laughs) john's
5: horror corner on twitter sent us some pictures from the bug lab where we often hear from john when he's listening to the episodes but in this case we actually got photographs of the bugs apparently it was horror pets and john says just building my army of insect dead one drawer at a time these are some awesome photos so thank you for sharing those with us john
0: yeah, and without question, I'd say this is one of the coolest photos that came in from John's Horror Corner there. Um, the, those bugs pinned to Styrofoam and, and John, <laughs> John listening from the Bug Lab. I really appreciate that. So that's very cool. Um, way impressed. We
5: also got our sole Instagram entry from Star Nerd, and I believe that is Mr. Smith MrSmith1014 on Twitter, Freestyle Freak. Let me know if I'm incorrect about that. But he shared a photograph of his cat on Instagram, and then on Twitter he says, The word of the day is betrayal. I hope to never hear it again. So, <laughs> uh, a little bit of criticism, I guess, on this episode. I personally loved it, Jay. Don't listen to him. I thought that was amazing. So. I hope to hear all about betrayal every time we do a
0: show from now. I hope there's a big, long list of discussion about betrayal on this very episode. (laughs) Thanks, Josh. And I feel like Mr. Smith there, AKA star nerd is guilty of betrayal for that comment. (laughs) I'm just kidding. No, that's awesome. And uh, yes, I did say that word like 50,000 times during that review of Cujo in the previous episode. Anyways, I think it is time here, the time you've all been waiting for to announce the the four big winners because uh, thanks to Wolfman Josh's generosity and I will make sure I uh, supplement this if necessary from my own stickers. Otherwise, I'm going to hold on to them to be honest with you. But anyways, uh, we're going to do four winners and because you typically don't have a fourth place mention, we're going to call it honorable mention for the fourth place, but not to worry you will still be getting uh, the stickers. And in fact, because we had a tie with the honorable mention, I am in fact contributing some stickers along with Josh. Since he did it, I can do it too. So I'm, I'll, I'll put up some stickers. So we actually have five sets of three for this prize. So the honorable mention goes to um, Van Ostrom 1974 for that artistic silhouette of the cat among the tower, tower of scratching posts looking out the window. And so that's one of the winners. And that is tied with Dave Z's Killer killer Tortoise and um, the slow burn picture. I think that's hilarious. Freaking awesome. So um, you two are tied for the fourth place or honorable mention. Thank you. Third place winner goes to the Cujo Puppy, James Waters of Michigan. Of course... Going to award a Cujo pick. I mean, especially since the guy owns a Saint Bernard. The thing is, if you've seen how big Saint Bernards are, that's some serious commitment to having a horror pet. If you purchase a Saint Bernard, so um, I love that, and I love the way that photo is taken. So, of course, you have to win third place, James Waters of Michigan. Number two, um, overall, this actually ended up being my my favorite of the whole the the whole batch of these pictures. And that is Luna Purr's Sphinx Cat Maynard. And again, um, Luna, if you'll permit us, we'd like to adopt Maynard as the horror movie podcast horror pet mascot. And so, uh, really proud of Maynard. Good job. (laughs) That is uh, just an incredible picture. I hope everybody will look at it in the show notes. And then the number one, the winner, the big kahuna and and that's because of the scariest picture among them all. And that is Jamie's dog, Max, with that come and play with us beagle picture that freaked me out. And I've stared at that picture. And I'll tell you one more thing about that in case the listeners are skeptical right now. I was I was doing this test on my wife to make sure you all didn't think I was nuts. I was having her look at it. And the first thing she said, she's like, wow, that dog has some intense eyes, right? So, I mean, it was working on her as well. But then I played the little music, okay? And of course, my son overhears this creepy music being played. So, he runs into the room and he wants to be a part of this. So, I'm like, "Mm okay, nine-year-old. So, I try it out on him. And he starts like buckling into the floor and crying with fear. He's very upset. And I get yelled at by my wife to turn off the creepy music that I played for you all. And so, um, this is legit. Jamie, your dog Max is a horror pet for real. So if you all won, if you were one of the five winners here, please email me at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com and put horror pets winner and all caps in the subject line just to help me spot it quickly. And then in that email, send me your mailing address, please, and I'll get the um the the stickers out to you for sure. <laughs> in a year from now. No, I'm just kidding. I'm gonna do better about it this time. I told you, this is my this is a serious uh, New Year's resolution <laughs> to get these prizes out faster. So I want to say congratulations to the winners. Um, these five photos that I've talked about here and that Josh has talked about, they will be pictured in the show notes for episode 120. And you can see all of the submissions on Twitter by searching for the hashtag horror cat. I want to thank everyone who participated. That helps um, drum up the buzz and support for this show. And so I'm going to turn it over to Josh to take it home out of this segment for us.
5: Thank you all for your amazing Horror Pets entries. I think Jay and Dave have some difficult work ahead of them picking the winners. And again, I will be donating three of my stickers gifted to us by Armored Foe so that uh, we can have a fourth winner of a three-pack of his awesome stickers. You know, we just have so much awesome feedback. We have here, Armored Foe says, Great episode. I love killer animal movies, especially our beloved pets. That concept is extremely frightening. Great cast. Allison says, I love this episode. My new fave... And Goat of Departure says, Great convos in this episode, guys. So, just a lot of people reaching out to say, Good job. I'm so surprised and glad that everyone liked that episode. We may have to do it in the future. Other listeners reached out with the movies that we forgot. Projectile Varmint says, Can't forget about Lake Placid. I don't know if she's serious or if that is uh, Projectile <laughs> Varmint having one of those dangerous pets that I talked about that we shouldn't be keeping in our homes. Projectile varmic, please, no giant crocodiles in your home that's just not the right choice for you or any of us really anyway clearly i am out of things to say so i will leave it to you guys that's 20 good minutes on our amazing horror pets feedback thank you guys all for listening and i hope to talk to you next time right here on horror movie podcast we are dead serious about horror pets
0: Okay, well, I think that just about wraps up episode 120 of Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this Frankensteinian episode. Once again, I want to take the time to thank Matroid of the Sci-Fi Podcast. He's a fantastic dude. I love that guy. Let me tell you a real quick story about Matroid. It's kind of cool, you know, you get to know us a little bit on the podcast, but even, you know, when having the opportunity to hang out with somebody in person, you get to know someone even more. And I want to tell you something that I have come to learn about Matroid that's actually kind of hilarious. Um, I've heard people tell me, you know, Matroid, he knows everybody. Like, everybody in the community knows him. You can't go anywhere without people... Seeing him and, and knowing who he is, and you know, I always heard that, and it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you hear things about people, and you're like, fine, okay. So, <laughs> the times that I have hung out with Matroid in public, it is remarkable. He is like the mayor of whatever town you're in. No kidding, seriously. We've hung out on two separate occasions to go to these movies, and I, I've seen at least like. four people each time I don't know three or four people stop him and talk to him and um, it's remarkable so uh, Matt Troy of the sci-fi podcast very lovable guy as you can tell and obviously very popular guy in the community. So um, I will not cross him because all of his uh, followers will kill me. But anyways, that's the Sci-Fi Podcast. Uh, Make sure you check him out. I'll have Matroid's links in the show notes for episode 120 here. So I hope you will go support his work. He is a good man. We also hope that you will uh, support our good friend, Dr. Shock. As he said, DVDinfatuation.com. If you're a movie fan and you haven't checked out that site, then you are missing out. He's also on Land of the Creeps with our friend Greg Amortis. I know that Greg Amortis had a move recently, so, you know, podcasting has been difficult for him to fit in with all of his moving responsibilities, but I understand they're getting that up and running again. Once again, Land of the Creeps, so make sure you check out Dr. Shock and Greg Amortis and friends over there. They're good friends of our show. Also, Wolfman Josh, who could not be here, but he's celebrating his anniversary. It was nice to hear him in our recorded clip. So I I do feel like you got a sense, you got some of Josh in this episode. Make sure you check out Josh on Movie Streamcast which is his show of um, online streaming movies. He's also on the Sci-Fi Podcast from time to time. And I'm trying to get him back on Movie Podcast Weekly, but he is such a busy man, it's actually difficult to schedule him. (laughs) So um, make sure you follow Josh on Twitter, at IcarusArts. And uh, he's very active on there and a lot of fun to follow. So uh, keep up with Josh. And as for me, I hope you will check out the sister show of this one, which is uh, Movie Podcast Weekly. It's like the original twin. These were born almost as twins. And uh, Movie Podcast weeklies, where we review new movies that are in theaters every single week. It's not always just horror. It's actually a lot of different things. And it's much more of a comedic show. Much to my chagrin. That's not necessarily my intention with that show. But I have um, co-hosts that are a bunch of weirdos. And it's like herding cats over there horror cats like the uninvited cat with a monster inside of it so anyway <laughs> we love your comments so please get involved in the horror movie podcast community you can leave a comment in the show notes for episode 120 here or actually you can leave a comment on any episode uh, you can also email us at horror gmail.com and you can call and leave us a voicemail at 801-382-8789 you can find all of our episodes, including the weekly horror movie podcast and horror metropolis, at our site, horrormoviepodcast.com. We hope you'll subscribe free in iTunes and follow us on Twitter at horrormoviecast. And I want to take the time to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for the Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at Frederick Ingram.com. We'd also like to thank Kagan Breitenbach for his classical reworking as we call it of fred's original theme it's really nice that strings stuff at the beginning it's, that's kagan right there and his crew so that's pretty awesome check him out at KaganBreitenbach.com. they are always linked in the show notes as well and of course if you enjoy the content that we put out on these shows like this show uh the sci-fi podcast movie streamcast we have an entire network of shows where we're all interrelated and interconnected it's called movie podcast network go learn more about those shows at moviepodcast.network and i think that's it for episode 120 we thank you for listening and join us again friday after next for horror movie podcast where we're dead serious about horror movies